This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. And if you don't, let me tell you about them. The Cash App is allowing you to stack sats. Uh, so you can buy and sell Bitcoin on the Cash App. You can send Bitcoin from the Cash App to a personal wallet, from a personal wallet to the Cash App. And then on top of that, you get uh, the ability to use the Cash App at other places with their boost program. So you get a specialized debit card. Uh, you get to put your signature on it, Bitcoin symbol, Lightning, whatever you see fit. And then you go to partner merchants, whether it be Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, uh, DoorDash, local coffee shops, and you save money when you shop with your boost card, with your boost enabled. Use the code stacking sats. That's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $5, then $5 is going to go to Alves Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our heart. Again, if you haven't downloaded it yet and you're in the U.S. and you're looking to buy Bitcoin, what the hell are you waiting for? Use the code StackingSats. Download the Cash App from your local app store today. Tales from the Crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Thursday afternoon for recording number two of the day. A very special recording. The official 100th episode of Tales from the Crypt. We specifically picked our voice. Our voice. We didn't pick our voice. You can never pick your voice. It depends what happens. We picked our guest for today very particularly for the 100th episode. It's a very special guest. I'm sitting down with Matt across from me. Matt's with us. We just... Uh, I'm not the special guest. We just recorded RHR, and now we're ripping into this. This is somebody who I've been following on Twitter, Matt, as well, for many years. I'm sure many of you freaks are going to recognize him. I'm thoroughly excited for this conversation and that we were able to get him to come on the podcast. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Arped Out. Hey everyone. Oh wait, I did it wrong. Let me try again. Sup freaks. <laughs> there you go. Nothing much, dude. You are uh, a man of infamy in my life, or, or to me at least. Uh, your prowess on Twitter in particular, that is what uh, you are well known for in my eyes. Uh, you have a very uh, innate ability to draw parallels to mania of the past and uh, what's going on in Bitcoin and the overarching cryptocurrency landscape here in the world that's happening right now in 2019 and the years five years past i believe that's uh when i started noticing you it was like 2015 2016 on bitcoin twitter wow has it been that long i think so make sure you're holding that mic close wow. um so let's just jump into it how did, before we get into all these parallels and all the good stuff how did you find your way to bitcoin sure okay uh well i guess like Oh, right. I have to hold the microphone up to my lips so that people can actually hear me. Yes. You don't have that issue on Twitter. <laughs> uh, see, this is why Twitter is so much easier. I have the chance to like delete and redo it when I screw up. You guys are going to have a nightmare in the editing studio. Apologies in advance for that. Uh, so when I first heard about Bitcoin, it was probably the infamous Slashdot article, if you remember that. And then the... That was what, 2011? Yeah. And in fact, it... I know it was 2011 because there's an email in my inbox that I saved that's haunting me to this day where I mock the idea of Bitcoin thoroughly. So for background, uh, I don't want to give my LinkedIn resume, but I've been working for a few decades now as a, what I'll say is distributed systems engineer. My title right now is lead architect, but I consult, so that sort of floats around a bit. I'm basically, when you need an old gray beard who has a lot of ISP experience, I'm the guy with the gray hairs. so with that background, when I first encountered the idea of money as a protocol in 2011, that triggered some 
deep and basic fears in someone who has a background like that, because all you're thinking of is like all the outages that you've had to deal with in the past, all the, the systems that you've seen break in weird and complex ways. Your instinctual belief is that this idea can never work. It's almost a reflex action. So there's an email I have in like April 2011, me like, I haven't bothered reading the white paper or writing code or anything. I'm just, you know, absolutely not having it. I'm like a moron. Uh, <laughs> and for, again, for background at the time, I hope I don't dox myself too hard with this, but I was working with a payment startup that we were working on things like PCI DSS compliance and making sure Stripe data was able to make it securely from retailers to payment processor gateways and that type of thing. So when you have that sort of perspective and you hear like a oh, peer to peer money that no one's in control of, you start thinking about things like chargebacks and subscription payments and how that would all work. And you're, again, your immediate reaction is, oh, these people are idiots, you know. This is going to fail completely. What was the impetus to uh, open your mind to it? Well, I kept waiting for it to fail. In 2011 and 2012 and 2013, uh, and eventually, at the end of 2013, Gox started having these rumblings, like where you sort of knew things were about to go south. Mount Gox is completely solvent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's one of those things you shouldn't have to say. You know, much less record a hostage clip of a video announcing it to the rest of the internet. Yes, for you freaks who are not aware of the uh, the inside joke we're making right now, Roger Ver came out in the uh, the fall or winter of 2013, early 2014, uh, in a really creepy video where, he, like, like you just mentioned, he looks like he's being held hostage and reassures everybody that Mount Cox is solvent. He's seen the papers. Well, then, then the new narrative is he never used the word solvent. <laughs> <laughs> So Mount Gox goes down. Right. Mount Gox uh, goes down. And then was, I don't know if Silk Road was. Silk Road was after. Mount right Gox. after. So there was yeah. that two-month interregnum where it was like, okay, well, the world's largest exchange has gone down. Oh, no. And then our best use case goes down with it. Yeah. And at this point, I'm doing the no corner victory dance, you know, like, haha, I knew it. This validates all my priors. And the thing just doesn't die. And this goes on for a couple of weeks. And finally, I'm like, all right, what? That's not how markets work. Let's. I finally force myself on one Friday afternoon to have a moment of humility and say, okay, maybe re-examine this thing that you knee-jerk just dismissed out of hand. And I jumped into the white paper on a Friday night, and by I think Sunday afternoon, I had religion. <laughs> it's like, oh, I get it now. What started clicking for you? Uh, the realization that it's really not about payments at all. It's about money. Um, there are plenty of amazing payment instruments that are based on credit that people use happily. Uh, trying to compete with a credit instrument right from the get-go is pretty difficult unless you're offering better rates or better terms than that credit instrument. And there are all sorts of different, you know what, credit instrument might even be too broad. Let's say fiduciary media. Mm -hmm. One of those things could be credit cards. Another thing could be fiat currency. You know, they're both of those have one thing in common, a counterparty obligation. The credit card, you have, your counterparty is Chase or whoever is underwriting the credit line. The fiat currency, it's the state. Now, we sort of weigh away that counterparty obligation because the state is as good as gold. They're the one who's, you know, backing up uh, the rule of law with their police force. They have the judges and the courts. So a note obligation to the state is sort of, you've already put your whole life in their hands. What's one more thing? Yeah, exactly. And so you didn't fall for the peer-to-peer -peer digital cash, uh, need to be able to buy coffee. Yeah, at payments. no point in time, was at, 
the entire time that I was reading it, at no point did I say, gee, this is a slightly less commuting way to pay for coffee. All in. <laughs> you know? And were you, uh, so you noticed the money aspect of it right away, which a lot of people get confused. A lot of people do get confused I, with the payments network part of it. Like, I don't, what is money, right? That's the yeah. problem that everyone has. No one knows what money is. Right. And if I'd, if I'd gotten through that, I still, for the record, I don't know what money is. Um, we just, that word and what it's applied to in the English language just blows my mind at times. We've been fighting over what money means for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We will keep fighting about it long after I'm dead, I'm sure. Um, Luckily, I didn't ask myself that question because I might still be tied up in knots. <laughs> what I asked myself was, what is this good for? And because I had already dismissed it from the payments point of view, I think that gave me the, the little kernel of like, enlightenment that managed to save me, which was, oh, this doesn't compete with anything in payments. This competes with my savings account. It's not my checking account. Right, right. It's the money that just sort of sits there and I can trust, but it has this extra aspect. I don't even have to trust the bank. I like how Pierre phrases it. It's a savings technology, not a payments technology. Right, that's a great line. Yeah. yeah. And so were you, you're coming from like a software engineer, uh, distributed systems background. Did the like fact that Bitcoin is, like were you dri driven to the economics of it as well? Or combination yeah, of the two? The economics of it, I have to be careful with that. Uh, I think the most important economic aspect of it is that any one of us can explain and understand the emission schedule and the way the money supply is created in inside of two minutes talking to each other. And we all agree on what that means. That base broad consensus, that's the most important aspect of it. I think, honestly, Satoshi picked a lot of constants very lucky out of thin air. Magic numbers. Yeah, exactly. Um, who am I to say that four years is better than one year or six months, for example? But the fact that we can all instantly agree on it, whether you have my background or whether you have my mom's background, who I recently had to explain Bitcoin to because it's been in CMBC, so now she has to take it seriously. She's obviously nothing to do with uh, computers or engineering or anything like that, but she got it right away. I think Did you have to do, have you been like trying to convince her for years? Or? No, my whole thing is, and I'm pretty clear on this, if you need someone to tell you to buy Bitcoin, you should not be doing anything. You're going to end up buying BitConnect by accident. <laughs> One of the best ways to get people to buy Bitcoin is to just tell them that they wouldn't understand it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that probably were, for the record, we're uh, we're recording this in Brooklyn, right off of Bedford Ave. That is the ultimate hipster line right there. <laughs> we are we are in hipster hipster mecca right now. Bitcoin's on vinyl. You probably wouldn't get it. I'm sorry. There was just a little sound in my, my ear there. My mic was getting a little clicky, but we fixed it. That's um, good. That's important. No, but it's... So, what... And then, so what did you do from there? So, you, I know you started a, quote-unquote, this is terrible to say, a blockchain consulting company. Oh, God. You're doing that for a little bit. And so, you're working at this this uh, payments so, startup. and Right. So... Okay, let me try to time this. This is 2014. The blockchain startup wasn't until a couple years later. So there's a brief interregnum where I'm just trying to read more and more and learn more and more. And what I ran into right away was that the only really sources of information were, that were out there was Bitcoin talk and Reddit. This is before crypto Twitter was even a thing. And I think this is a large part of how crypto Twitter became a thing. All of us were desperate to talk to each other but didn't know where to meet. So we just started ranting about Bitcoin and then searching for each other's hashtags. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was beautiful in the uh, winter of 2013 into the spring of 2014, summer of 2014. And really, for 
going to give credit where credit is due. I think the, the mania around Bitcoin, Twitter, what it's turned into started as crypto Twitter is people sh- trading shit coins. Yeah. And that was uh, a lot of the cash tags. A lot of the cash tags were started for shit coins. I remember there was a big deal when uh, it moved from hashtags to cash tags on crypto Twitter for, oh God. for your shit coins. But that's what you were, we were uh, talking about before we hit record is that we've all survived like that that phase and that, then the 2017 mania and now we're now we're here in 2019 but let's try to break down what it was like uh in 2013 2014 for the freaks out there oh wow eyes. well he wasn't really a believer yet right yeah this was actually i can't speak no to coiner yeah I, so i can't speak to what it was like well actually it was a pre-coiner yeah three months after gox let's say that sounds about the right time i'd have to it's look like may 2014 yeah, sounds about right yeah. if i yeah if I look at my Coinbase, uh, but Silk, had had Silk Road gotten taken down yet? Uh, I think, I think so. I think I felt like Silk Road was the fall. I've got a laptop here. Uh, Let me check. I want to see summer or fall. Oh, so Marty, Marty's down. day checking for us. Yeah, pull that up, Marty. November 2014. There you go, fall. Wow. Because I remember six. I was on the toilet when I found out yeah. about it. You know, the oh, wait, good old reading Road Bitcoin 2.0. news on your toilet. Right. Silk Road 2.0. Oh, so when, when was Silk Road 1.0? Yeah. 2.0 was the first one. It's like whack The rest of Ross Albrecht. Yeah, Happened when was that? October 2nd, 2013, actually. Wow. Oh, so pre-Gox. Pre-Gox. It was pre-Gox. Oh, this wow. This is the thing with wrong. Bitcoin history. We, when we tried to do the USAF or wow, USAF history, we messed huh. up our timelines as well. Okay, so that still makes sense. Yeah. So, so Silk Road goes down, Gox and, goes down. Four months later, it's yeah. like May 2014. And at this point, despair is set in, and I feel like I've missed the boat on Noah's Ark, and it doesn't matter that Noah's Ark is like capsized, you know? <laughs> on fire. It's like, oh, I wanted to be on that boat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you saw it in 2011, I, I didn't see it back then. Like, that must have been a little bit painful. Yeah, you know... I wasn't on board. I wasn't really watching at the time. There wasn't really... I mean, 2011 Price Discovery was like, you know, Did, alpaca sucks. Didn't exist, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is that, that is important, I think, to touch on right here since we're at this point in your discovery. Uh, every single person who gets into Bitcoin thinks they're late, right? Yeah. Would you say that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought I was so late. Right. I mean, once it hits you, once you get religion, you're like, well, this is obvious. Everyone, I, this is not a secret I can keep to myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember, I don't want to dox myself here too, but I remember getting my first bonus check and being like, all right, I'm in. It was bad timing for me, but uh, it was... It uh, was good timing though, it turned yeah, out. Good timing in retrospect now, looking back, but uh, it is crazy that like itch you get to, to jump in and... Uh, I think going back to like 2014, 2015, that, that summer of 2014 in particular is when uh, the first shitcoin storm started like in earnest. You had like people like Bryce Wiener oh, spinning man. up like uh, Blake coin or whatever it was. Bryce was like the king of shitcoins. Zeta coin. Shitcoins were going to save Black coin. Remember Black coin? All right. Let's confess our shitcoin sins. Did anyone, have you been pure maximalist all the entire time? Haven't bought a single shitcoin oh, once? Oh, God, no, no. When I first on, got in, I was, repent. I was, I was a whore when I first got in. I'm repenting now. No, yeah. I mean, I lost all my Bitcoin gambling get, on shitcoins. I have none now. That's, that's uh, I'm completely, com- completely clean of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, that'll happen sometimes. My condolences, man. <laughs> Did you? No, but I think we've all been there. I had a tragic, is it boating accident? Is that used? A tragic uh, shitcoin accident. Sure. No, I just got fucked by Cripsy. <laughs> oh, Vern? Yeah, yeah. Vern, uh, Big Vern. Big Vern's living off my saffron coin. 
He's ever in <laughs> Hong Kong or Thailand. Yeah, so you freaks aren't aware, Big Vern. Big Vern was the CEO of Cripsy. He was like the first CZ. First CZ. Huge ego. Huge ego. Yeah. He just exit scanned everybody, right? He just ran away. Like he just stopped for He was like based out of like Boca Raton, Florida or something too. <laughs> yeah. And then he just like fucking bolted to China. I think. People are still yeah. looking for Big Vern. If you see Big Vern <laughs> out there, let us know. We'd love to talk to him. Big Vern, if you're listening, you may be. Cripsy was like the Binance of the first. We're not. I don't know if that that wasn't really the first alt run, but like the alt run of that era. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess this is how we're going to start framing and organizing this conversation. Is so like the you know, what I think you're very what Arbed out is very good at in sort of pointing out on Twitter with his threads with very uh, very good detail is sort of the mania that we're in. And, and so like the, the different types of snake oil salesmen that we see throughout the years and how it's evolved and where we are now in that cycle. So in your point, in your point of view, how has that changed from where it was back then? Oh, wow. Give me a timer to focus on because we could talk about, you know, snake oil salesmen during the All railroad. Right, so bubble or? Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's start with the railroad and then, so we'll start with the railroad and just like snake oil salesmen in general. If anybody's trying to sell like whatever proof of stake coin, merge mind, uh, multi-script coins, and then we can transition into the protocol wars and really focus on Bitcoin versus something like Ethereum going from there. Wow. Okay. So focusing on snake oil salesmen specifically, there seems to be, as part of any new technological revolution, new techno paradigm, let's... If we have to use that word. There seem to be two sort of main currents. There are the people who are building things that they're going to be using in the long term, and then there are people who sense the opportunity around it and try to cash in. And some of those people are necessary. That's a lot of venture capital is basically based on the idea of you know taking a long shot bet on someone that pays off with ten to one odds on a ten to thirty year time frame. That's not that indistinguishable from gambling. Uh, the difference is, I guess. A snake oil salesman versus a VC or an investor with big dreams is the snake oil salesman sort of knows that he's not on the level. He's He has inside information, that he's not actually going to be joining you on this journey that he's selling you on. Uh, and there's ways you can suss them out. A great way to suss out the snake oil salesman during the shitcoin bubble was watching them pump their shitcoins and then trade out into dollars immediately. Like, why don't you want to hang on to the asset that you're pumping? Can That's, you give an example of this? Uh, not without getting sued, man. Jeez. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want to name names. It's, Bitcoin doesn't fix that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, it feels, I mean, we're recording this now in the summer of 2019. It feels a bit like, you know, doing an end zone victory dance at this point. Most of the shitcoin salesmen have uh, sort well, of... How about Charlie Lee, right? He's oh, the classic wow. example. There. He's my favorite. He's the classic He's example. He's my favorite to hate because, and he gets away with it, man. He's gotten away with, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast. At least but. he told people he sold. Yeah, like, that's I'm, true. everyone knows how I feel about Charlie, but at least he told people he sold, and he did, he did kind well, of fall Well, regardless of that, like, my, the crux of my issue with Charlie isn't so much with Charlie, it's that the fact that he was CTO of Coinbase and the moral hazard of him being the lead dev of Litecoin and it oh, being wow. 
And and those Coinbase tweets in the beginning were like crazy. He was like, oh, like what price will Litecoin be when it hits Coinbase? You know, and he would like list a poll with just like all huge numbers. Right. You really can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. This is very questionable. He's a very rich man now, though. Yeah, he's got, you know, he sold it for both real money and fiat. Yeah. Well, let's pull this back to like the, the railroad craze. Like what were some of the things off the top of your head that happened then? Oh, well, I feel like I've tweeted a lot about the railroads, maybe too much. Um, Well, well, before we get into the railroads, like what is your fascination with like history and reading? You're one of the most well-read people I've I've come across. Oh, God, I I always... You read a lot of boring stuff. Yeah, I do. I always blanch when people say this because it's sort of privileging the media that I prefer. Like if I were pasting screenshots of all the Netflix stuff that I binge, I don't do that. I'm not a Netflix binger, but if I were, you'd be like, oh, man, you couch potato. But I paste all the screenshots from the books that I'm reading. Like, ah, oh, what a learned scholar. <laughs> so erudite. <laughs> like, okay, I, it, sure. <laughs> um, my fascination with the railroads. Stop being so humble. <laughs> uh, Stay humble. So my whole thing is that railroads are the first real uh, globally available networks. Uh, and before that, I guess you could say that trade routes were, you know, the way that uh, goods were shipped across the world using boats and whatnot. But around the time when we started getting the ability to design railroads and lay down railroad tracks, we immediately started to ha- need the ability to manage networks to design. We didn't have the words like hubs and spokes and whatnot, but that's what we needed to be able to use railroads as a civilization. So a lot of the initial weird things that you saw later in the internet bubble and maybe even the shitcoin bubble, uh, I see reflections of that during the initial railroad boom in the 1800s. What in particular happened back then? Uh, like, what were some of the the scams that were going on back then? Oh man, <laughs> would you believe they had protocol wars? No, they totally had protocol wars. How do you think a protocol war works out on a railroad? The width of the track. Bingo! I've been I've been reading your tweets. Oh shit! Look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, gauge width, and there were tremendous fights over gauge width spanning decades. Because someone had made the decision to throw in their money first and then worry about the integration later. So they're pot committed and they don't actually let technical due diligence get in the way of their wants and desires. They've already got money pulling them in a different direction. Sound familiar? Yeah. And what did they wind up consolidating on? Sorry? What did they wind up consolidating on? Well, initially there were attempts to try to bridge the two different kind of widths, like with extenders and sort of jerry-rigged devices that can... uh, connect two different kinds of rails interoperability exactly chain link <laughs> oh man we're going there the Nobs creek is flowing wow there you go that's our that's our secret to success <laughs> yeah uh, shout out to arbed out for bringing a bottle of Nobs creek with him thank the least you. i could do thank you uh yeah but eventually what happened is network effects kicked in which is a different way of saying that more people preferred just incidentally one particular railroad line for whatever reason. There were multiple different reasons that I, we don't have to go into because they're local to the railroad bubble, I think. They're boring. I mean, if you give me three hours, I might go into it, but for the sake of brevity. We have plenty of time. There is no time um, limit. We have 75 hours of recording space on this SD card, so. <laughs> oh, no, that's the limit. <laughs> um, eventually, the dominant network took over, and the operators of the dominant network said, you know what, this interoperability stuff is way too much of a hassle. Sorry, we're going to disconnect you. The interoperability was in play just long enough for them to pull in customers to their new network and buy time to lay down rails to uh, alleviate the fucked up 
non-operable yeah interoperability tracks yeah. The, the other big thing with the railroads was uh, information asymmetry, right? Like people, the investors didn't really know what they were buying. Yeah, exactly. This is a great example of, there's, I forget the Silicon Valley thought leader who says it, but it's actually a good line that I'm going to steal from him. He says, people don't buy products, they buy better versions of themselves. The people who were investing in the railroad bubble, some of them were investing in like dreams of a better tomorrow, of being able to be able to instantly transport to somewhere lush and green in the suburbs, or they wouldn't call it the suburbs, in, you know, the backwoods. The backwoods, <laughs> yeah, like that. wherever. Um, and some people were really piggyba- piggybacking off of the first railroad bubble in the very first boom years and seeing the people who got rich and said, well, I don't really care about railroads, but I want to be like that guy. Right, right, I've, right. Seen, I've seen this guy made his bones on railroads. I'm just going to build a bigger railroad and thus make more. Everlasting riches and big titty bitches. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Shout out to American Hoddle. That's what the, the railroad boom was based oh. off of. Well, there, there's one guy that I've tweeted about recently uh, by the name of, his name is Ruskin. He was a vociferous railroad critic. He had every single possible criticism of railroads you could possibly imagine. He criticized like the way they smelled, the way they sounded, the company of the people you were in, all this stuff. And it turns out at the end of the criticism that, by the way, he just built a uh, carriage car that was required, that didn't uh, work on the railroads, that needed like paved roads. And he saw the railroads as a threat to him. But that part is like left out of the, uh, until the very end of his 39 different volumes of railroad criticism. 39 volumes? Yep, dude went all in. Did you read the all 39 oh, volumes? Oh, good lord, no. I read the synopsis. Come on, I'm not that much of a mascist. <laughs> he, was, he was a no-trainer. Yeah, exactly. A no-trainer. <laughs> God damn it, Matt. You're always, you're always thinking. There you go. And and it's crazy how similar it all is. You know? yeah. And someone else, I think, uh, I think it was Nick Carter who mentioned the, the bowling alley boom of the 80s. Or oh, the seventies. Wow. That's a good one. Where everyone was like, "There's going to be a bowling alley in every town." They had one in the White House, and it just it was like the biggest pump and dump ever. And there's just so many similarities. Just when you go throughout history, it's pretty fucking crazy. Well, yeah, let's jump into the similarities that you like that we're seeing with the protocol wars in cryptocurrency. Right. Oh so wow. What are your What are your thoughts? Are you Do you think the protocol wars? Wow. Do you think there's room for multiple c- protocols? Do you think it's a winner-take-all, winner-take-most? Um, how do you see this playing out? I got to figure out a way to say this without sounding like a fortune cookie. <laughs> um, What's our lucky numbers? <laughs> 21 million. Okay, so let's talk about the protocol wars. When you say that to me, the first thing that just blazes in front of my mind is, shit, protocols are war. Protocols are contracts between, especially on peer-to-peer networks, between different actors with different incentives, different goals. The only thing they really agree on is that they're all showing up to the same party, you know? Uh, When we talk about the protocol wars, typically what we're talking about is uh, the TCP IP suite versus OSI and the choice for which protocol suite to adopt to help grow the internet. But in fact, there have been plenty of different, if that's the protocol war, there have been plenty of different protocol skirmishes. There's the fight between HTTP and Gopher. There's the perennial, I wouldn't say war, but guerrilla conflict between IPv4 and migrating to IPv6 versus just using NAT. Basically, 
a protocol is a means for a bunch of different people with different hopes and dreams to all get on the same page. But just because they're all on the same page doesn't mean they're all singing the same song. The things that like Cloudflare wants out of the internet are very much different than the things that I want out of the internet, and we're both speaking the same protocol. The things that Google want out of the internet versus what you and I want out of the internet, very different. They want to monetize our personal, personalized information. I would not like to do that. I just want to ship host. And, but the protocol makes all of this possible, right? Yeah, it's the protocol that allows us to all negotiate and at least speak on the same terms. It's like a language. Yeah, exactly. A language is a protocol. Yeah. We could all disagree in English. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so... So the specific protocol wars. Okay, so here's, what I, here's my brief synopsis of the OSI versus TCP protocol wars. TCP was sort of just a weird science project that Vince Cerf came up with on a weekend, and the internet as it was was small enough back in the day to just fling it up against the wall and see if it stuck. The flag day to cut over to it was, if I remember correctly, we're going to have to look this up online in my tweets, January 1st, 1983, I want to say, and there were like 400 nodes on the network at the time that had to like upgrade to this new protocol. Um, How many nodes were there? 400. Yeah, this uh, is a small internet back in the day. Tiny. We're talking, you know, universities mostly. Right, right. I'm that map we always see. Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking through your many tweet threads right now. Let's see if I can find the date. Yikes. I've got your... well. And this is like the prescient thread that I want to hit on with these protocol wars in particular is this, what was this? The, it's like a, like a flashcard thing. Oh, right. The flashcards. So like the first one is like, if, as we should, we let a thousand flowers bloom, we'll let 10,000 weeds bloom as well. It must be our great task then to distinguish the weeds from the flowers. So that is a quote from Michael Pedlipsky, who was a protocol engineer at the time that this was all going on, and he was very much what we would call a TCPIP maximalist. So let me set the scene here. Yeah, TCPIP is basically this weird-ass science project. Vince Serp didn't think to call himself Satoshi Nakamoto or anything cool like that, but same spirit, just some guy's side project that managed to become wildly popular and work. The OSI suite was very much the protocol designed by committee, and everyone got to uh, put their own two cents in there was a hierarchical top-down design, meetings and focus groups and all that sort of thing. Uh, so two very sort of different cultures entirely. There's the two guys in a garage hacking things out versus a top-down hierarchical organization. And like very much corporate driven, right? Yeah, So does, does this even dive into like waterfall versus agile development? What the? Like waterfall, like uh, top-down. I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that says it has to, but yeah, organizations like that tend to adopt a waterfall methodology of software development just de facto, just because you, know, you get your marching orders from above and those get filtered down to your middle managers and eventually the devs have to do something to make some, some uh, middle manager in a meeting two weeks from now be able to check off something on a box. Okay. Yeah. So how did TCP eventually... Well, so there were skirmishes through, all throughout the 80s over whether, whether OSI would be adopted and by who and what context. Uh, and I think I've tweeted about them for at length, so I don't want to bore people too much on the podcast with it. But I can tell you where it all came to a head and where it got interested in. Sounds good to me. Sure. There was a meeting in 1992 with the IAB, and the basic premise was, okay, uh, the protocol as we know it is not going to scale. Uh, this is before IPv6 had been even designed or anything like that. So we're running into, it turns out in retrospect, an imagined scaling bottleneck. How are we going to deal with this? Uh, 
an email was sent out to a public mailing list, basically presenting the adoption of the OSI suite as a fait accompli, as something that already happened and just need, the details need to be hammered out. And the community of internet protocol engineers and network operators that were on the mailing list that received the, uh, that letter erupted in response. And the meeting uh, in Boston in 1992, I believe, was extremely contentious. And it basically was the protocol suite equivalent of the UASF. Just a bunch of engineers saying, nope, we're not doing this. I, we appreciate the email, but we reject your proposal. We, believe, we reject kings. We believe in running code and rough consensus. That was the line. If you've ever heard that repeated in Bitcoin, that's where it came from. Boss. Never heard that line at all, ever. <laughs> in Bitcoin. <laughs> And, and so this was, would you consider this like the first modern day digital age protocol war? Yeah, it was the first massive conflict between two different competing protocol visions, mostly because we're still feeling, figuring telecommunications protocols out in the 70s and late 80s, and we were still trying to decide where they were relevant and whether they were even worth arguing about. Yeah, you weren't really at like the scale to yeah. get into a debate, right? Exactly. The scale at that point would have been, you know, not too different from the three of us in this room right now. You can sort of hash out any arguments that we would have on a particular protocol right. suite pretty quickly. Once you start pulling in people from different universities and corporations and uh, defense research agencies and all that, each of them sort of pushing against each other and jockeying for position, things get very difficult. Very Bureaucracy. Quick. Exactly. Well, even though it was like still like a small world back then and the small protocols that they were fighting over, it's, it's crazy how prescient it was in context to what we're doing here and what we've seen in Bitcoin and in the overarching shitcoin space. Like, yeah. So beware the panacea peddlers. Just because you wind up naked doesn't make you an emperor. Perhaps they really do strive for uh, incomprehensibility in their specs. After all, when the liturgy was in Latin, uh, the lady knew their place. A short course in law is descriptive. F minus M times A, prescriptive. You shall not bear false witness. Uh, do you want protocols that look nice or protocols that work nice? That one really resonates with me. I'm deep in the middle of managing a layer 7 protocol load balancer right now. And I think about that every day when I see data coming into the LBA. Like, oh, this looks nice. Great. So can you break that down a little further for us? Like, oh, God. Edit that part out from the... <laughs> prank call, prank call. We're not editing shit out. Yeah, we don't edit that. This is the director's cut? This is Knob Creek at its finest. We're just going to shoot the shit. Nice. Yeah, well, well so you, I, I guess you, yeah. let's start transitioning this. Like, what are people doing wrong when they're approaching uh, shit coins in particular? Oh, wow. Let's pick on Ethereum. We like to pick on Ethereum. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, man. So this I, is... This is it, for context, I mean, these are protocols. Bitcoin is a protocol. It's a set of rules, a set of consensus rules that we all agree upon and can meet and, and agree. And if money, if this is to become money, and money is truly, uh, it follows Thier's law, not Gresham's law, which is uh, commonly mis mistaken for Thier's law, and good money drives out bad. In the digital age, maybe this dominant money protocol will win out Bitcoin. Um, but it seems like there's many people any uh, panacea peddlers, if you will, who are out there that think they can do better and, and will do better. So I guess what we should jump into uh, is Bitcoin's, uh, what people perceive are its limitations and 
uh, why it may not be a scalable protocol or the protocol, the dominant protocol at the end of the day, uh, how something like Ethereum thinks they're fixing it and why they might be misguided. Okay. I can definitely give you a piece of my mind on that, but I feel like I should preface it with it. This is just one loudmouth's opinion. I mean, we've been trying to yell at each other about this for years, and it seems we're not going to be reaching consensus anytime soon. But I'll try to back it up with some examples, at least. The chief failing in my mind that all these cargo cult copies of Bitcoin that are trying to build a bitter, better, dappier Bitcoin are failing to understand it is that it's a protocol, not an application layer. You want to build your apps on top of a protocol, not into the protocol. It, there's just no way to accommodate all of those different goals and hopes and dreams of you know, tens of thousands of developers who want to build applications into a base protocol layer. Eventually, you're going to have to give them an off-ramp to do some whatever weird, crazy stuff they want to do off-chain. Uh, an analogy would be, well, HTTP is a great example of a layer protocol that hosts the application layer. Imagine that we had to put in every HTTP protocol layer tweak into TCP instead of HTTP. The problem with doing that is that if you want to take advantage of new features of the HTTP protocol, you download a new browser. If you want to take advantage of new features in the TCP protocol, you have to hard upgrade anything running the TCP protocol, which is not just your operating system, but it's also all the routers in between you and the web server that is running the other side of the HTTP transaction. It's just an order of magnitude change in the amount of effort required. It's basically, I mean, it's people ignoring trade-offs for their own benefit, Ex exactly. right? Exactly. They pretend they don't exist when there's trade-offs yeah. Just in nature, there's and always trade-offs. I've always wondered, are they ignoring it, or are they pretending it doesn't exist, or they, do they not appreciate it? I think... It's a combination, think, like, Yeah. Right? Well, yes, I think it is a combination. There's definitely some who are openly ignoring it and probably understand and are like the snake oil salesman that you were describing earlier who are just here to make a quick buck. But I do believe there's altruists and people who think this is really going to scale, or not even scale, but they think they're solving the world's problems, but... Or, too naive to realize the limitations that they're running up against. Sorry. That was just, yeah, I was just tangenting yeah. here. No, I mean, I agree. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. I think a lot of people are naive in this industry specifically, right? And, uh, and they don't realize, and those are the people that we can convert, and then there's the people that are dead to us, and those are the snake oil salesmen <laughs> who absolutely know that the trade-offs exist, but they want to increase their Bitcoin stack as, as much as possible before that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Do they even want to increase their Bitcoin stack, or are they just like... Well, the smart ones want to increase their Bitcoin stack, and then you have the stupid oil, uh, snake oil salesmen who want to increase their fiat stack. That's but true. either way, they're, they're trying to increase the stack. That's true. Um, which brings us like to a good segue in something that Arbdout reached out to me that he wanted to touch on while we're having this conversation is... Uh, sort of like what motivates shit coiners and no coiners and how, oh, right. how, we were, how it differs from what motivates Bitcoiners. I still don't know. I have a few ideas about what motivates some of my Bitcoiner friends and myself, but I don't know if I feel comfortable speaking for them. I feel like... Speak for yourself. I'll try. What motivates you? What motivates me? We exited. 
you know I no longer when I see things about say the Federal Reserve on television it's entertainment for me it's nothing that has anything to do with my it's life hope right yeah, exactly I'm there's something deep and profound about that, about how our generation seems to prefer anonymous peer-to-peer -peer software over the people who are ostensibly in charge of our monetary system. Just There's a generation gap there, but it's more than that. There's a culture gap between those of us who see Bitcoin as an exit versus those of us who see it as a waste of energy. Yeah, I mean, some people look at it looking at us seeing bitcoin as like an exit a vehicle through which we are exiting they think we're crazy like to the point where they're trying to label us as terrorists why would you want to exit Marty? white supremacists yeah exactly why would you want to exit and i think that's the biggest obstacle we have to overcome when we're trying to you never appreciate the need to exit until you've had your exit blocked i found i didn't really appreciate it until i had a one-two punch of using venmo and you can't mention words like Persian or Iran or Farsi on Venmo without getting your payments blocked, which is a bit of a kick in the teeth if you're trying to buy a book of Persian poetry for your dad for his birthday. <laughs> you know? Like, what, now I'm on OFAC's shit list? Are you kidding me? Yeah, so let's jump into that. You, where, Where's your family from in the world? You know, I don't want to get into too much detail on it because I don't want to fall victim... Uh, into sort of victim mentality where I start blaming all of my problems on the banking system and on Venmo or anything. They have to overcomply with those rules and I appreciate that. I don't have to be a part of their system. It, Satoshi gave me the right to exit and as a result, I no longer have to bitch and moan. So I'm sorry you built a product that doesn't interest me. That's your problem. <laughs> but more specifically, I mean, is, is your family had like firsthand uh, examples of of living oh. through like political turmoil that led to economic turmoil that led to you know loss of savings loss of wealth yeah right? you can probably guess that from my age i'm the right age for an iranian family to have been hit by the one-two punch of the revolution in the war uh everyone dealt with it in their own way i guess one of the strange things that i still can't quite believe even to this day is how comfortable people were storing their using the uh things like silverware or jewelry or silk rugs as a store of value. That's something uh, you wrote a thread about that. Yeah, because I tweet about everything, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, intermediate monetary assets are the thing. People were using silver, silverware particularly, right? Like silver forks and... Silverware, uh, there are different things. The big play is real estate, but the problem is it's not divisible, so you end up with like odd chunked size lots, and there's not much liquidity depending on where you go. So you have to search for some, what Nick Zabo calls Mengarian commodity that you know there's enough demand for that, you can, that is generic enough that you can pawn off. So silverware, sure, but for its silver content. It can't be any silverware. That's actually a problem they found <laughs> several hundred years ago. People were stockpiling silverware because it was shiny, and then they realized, oh, wait, the silver content is not that great. It's tungsten. Yeah. At the end it's of the day. One step away. I mean, that's the thing people don't realize about real estate. I mean, we're in New York. We're in the most, one of the strongest real estate markets in the world, um, highly liquid by real estate standards. And it's not liquid at all if you compare it to Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, it takes, it'll take you like nine months to close a deal, 10 months to close a deal. Who knows how much slippage you have in between there? Um, and it's big numbers, right? You're not talking, you can't, you can't, there's no divisibility there at all. Is there a difference between how long it takes to 
unload a single apartment, let's say, versus a single building? I imagine there would be. I guess, but still not that much. Because wow. look, the at the end of the day, you want the highest price possible, right? right. So it, you know, it's liquid in the fact that if you just want to like market dump your real estate, you can market dump it, you know, at like a, a, a horrible price. But if you like want a good price, like it takes you time, right? And then you have the other factor where like people who are holding some of the most expensive real estate in the world in like Hong Kong, and you have political turmoil come in and just upends the whole fucking system. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, uh, because cause real estate is anchored in your geographical location, right? So yeah. so it does very much rely on faith in the, the political um, landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's why uh, I think Connor Brown's uh, his post on basically Bitcoin providing a store of value where people will not have to store their value in real estate and equities or whatever is is very bullish for Bitcoin because again, like you do not want to be stuck in Hong Kong where they have all these protests going out and China ruins their autonomy and their real estate prices go dick up overnight and ass up, tits up. That's what it is. Um, and then you have things like what's going on in Argentina this week where. Now, if they wanted to get $10,000 out per month, they can't. And again, it's too late for them now. No. Like if They wanted to funnel that into Bitcoin. They can only do it in, in small amount. Well, if they had to convert to U.S. dollars first, but they can only get $10,000 worth of U.S. dollars per month now. Um, no, it just highlights the fickleness of the jurisdiction with which you live in. And going back to, to your story in Iran in particular, I don't know, this is getting too heavy, but like, what like as an Iranian, as somebody with an Iranian family who was pushed to America, like what are you? What are you? Like what are your thoughts on the 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 relationship between U.S. and Iran? Pass, pass. Yeah, yeah. To we, let's let's limit the list of people I'm going to piss off on this podcast. Okay. Uh, I don't. It's not that I uh, don't have opinions on that sort of thing. It's just I worry that I my opinions end up speaking for other people who can't speak yeah. and I know mine are a little bit out there. I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. Yeah. No, I, I mean, and I'll just say just as an American looking at and some, you're not the first Iranian friend. I like to call well, you. He's friend. also American. Yeah, You are American as well, yeah. but like grew up in the States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know, but it's important for the freaks. What I'm tr- no, what I'm trying to get is like, as an American, like in our relationship with Iran, it's always perplexed me. It's like, why, because I've met individual Iranians. I'm like, these are great people. Like, you're, we, were, we were almost propagandized growing up to, ha- to hate Iran. It's a relationship of power. You yeah, know, it's no. what it all comes down to, greed and power. That's the beauty of Bitcoin. The beauty of Bitcoin is that it channels greed for good, right? Is, is, is because so many people want to ignore that greed exists. But with Bitcoin, we acknowledge greed exists and we make the system in a way that, that it allows greed to actually make it stronger and to help people flourish instead of right? weaker. Yeah. No, sorry for trying to take it there. I was just, uh, I'm curious. I'm not, I'm like infinitely curious to the point where like, it's like, ah, why is it like, yeah, I'm not going to get into it back to, uh, mm-hmm. what we came here for. But like, so what, how do you see like Bitcoin being successful from here? Like, do you think Bitcoin 10 years in September, 2019, uh, would you consider it excess, a success at this point? Do you think uh, it's vulnerable? Are you are you happy with where it's at? You know, it's the weirdest thing. I don't think we should ever be happy or content. I think it's always evolving. If you'd said in 
1999 that the web was amazing and awesome and a life-changing revelation, I would agree with you. But if you said it was success at that point, I would have said, does that mean there's nowhere else for us to go? I think this is just the beginning. I think we've avoided crib death. Crib death? You know, we... <laughs> there, there was that awkward period where it was like, wow, gee, I don't know, maybe... Maybe people are right. Maybe one of the million different things that uh, have been pointed out is uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt talking points might actually come true. Well, you, that was like we were talking about 2014, 2015, earlier. Like 2015, it went summer, fall of 2015. Like there was legitimate. Ooh, despair. Uh, despair. Like I have. I, it's, well, January was the low, right? It was like 150 was January. I thought it hit like 180 in July. When do I think that? But 150 was January. It was the low. Possibly. Yeah. But then that whole year was just despair. It I was think going I remember to pumping like the November 2015 into 2016. I was just like holding my bags at that point and like crying in a corner. <laughs> and I was just like, my dad was right. <laughs> <laughs> there was legit despair. Like I legit was like, oh shit, this like might not work out. When was the bear well? That was right around there. But when do you remember? No, I think the bear well was December 2014. Wow. That's my guess. I'm probably wrong, as we've seen with Bitcoin history so far. Marty's looking it up. Those posters are great, like the bear whale posters and stuff. That was a great moment. I was in not helping to kill the bear whale. I was, as I said, I was crying in the corner. <laughs> yeah, this happened uh, in October of 2014. There you wow. go. I got that one right, at least. Yeah, because then after the bear whale, we actually dropped to the low, which was January 2015. Of like 150 or like 160. The timeline is so off. Yeah, it's weird how we edit everything in retrospect. Hyper-shitcoinization is sort of the 2017 Scambrian explosion has just scrambled all of our understandings of time. There was before and after, and before is just some weird mess. It's well, all jumbled together. What was the most uh, astonishing thing to you of the ICO boom in particular? Of the or ICO boom? How many people jumped in with both feet who sincerely believed that they had performed technical due diligence and had only done so much as scan the white paper and had a brief chit-chat conversation with someone who had some believable pitter-patter to sell them. The, the bastardization of the term white paper is, an, is I feel like the scientific community people should be coming were, after. Uh, people were reading like 10 white papers a week. I was just like, I was sitting there. I was legit sitting there during that pump where I was, I, I was like, oh my God, there's, we have like Yale grads, like Princeton grads, like all these people telling me I'm wrong and they're right and that I'm supposed to be reading all these white papers. And I was just like, I, I, am I wrong? I was yeah. actually like, I, it, was, it was a similar questioning myself as 2015, but in a different way. You know, I was sitting there, I was like, well, if I'm wrong, like I'm way fucking off. Like there's, like I'm not even close. Right. How horrifying is that in retrospect, realizing that, oh, no, it's actually option B. Everyone else just temporarily lost their minds, and now they're not going to talk about it. <laughs> just, well, I didn't think the whitewashing was going to happen as much as it did. I am not white. letting that slide. I took screenshots. I have receipts. <laughs> well, the whitewashing is pretty egregious. I mean, the whitewashing uh, that we had to defend a couple weeks ago ourselves, we're not going to name the particular uh, aggressor uh, towards us, but a lot of people in the Ethereum community are trying to say that consensus and the lead devs and vitalik and the company Vlad, consensus Vlad, the yeah. company consensus yes uh, horrible name and the lead company. devs were weren't advisors to icos that raised hundreds of millions of dollars i mean the dow the first 
ICO on Ethereum. Not the first ICO. The first ICO was many years before Ethereum. But I have a question. If that were true, and we know it's not, but if that were true, when the Dow went down and that famous announcement came across, okay, guys, can you stop trading? If you're not coordinating with people who are trading, then who are you talking to with that sentence? You have to ask someone to stop trading, right? It is So let's describe this more for the freaks who aren't aware of what happened. What, what are you talking about? Who said stop okay. trading? So when the initial Dow kerfuffle went down, there was an internal, I want to say Skype room? It was an IRC. Oh. And I think it was Skype, yeah. Pretty sure it was Skype. Several yeah. different participants were trying to sort through what had happened and the initial reports and actually viewing activity on chain. And then a, um, blanking on the guy's name, a lead Ethereum developer, some guy, uh, gave out the call. No, it was Vitalik. Oh, it, what, Vitalik sorry, straight who? up said, okay, guys, can you stop trading? Sorry, who? Right? Vitalik Buterin? Have you heard of him? Boy Wonder Kid? Not ringing any bells. Sorry, guys. <laughs> here's, uh, here's got some quantum computing coming out, too. Oh, that guy. Gosh. Yes. Yes, the yes, quantum yes. dude. Yeah, right quantum on. computing guy. Um, Gave out the call, okay, can you guys stop trading? And the only way that makes sense is if there's someone else who can actually execute your order, someone at an exchange who is in charge of liquidity. Why are you talking to those people? Why are you in a chat room with them 24-7? This was not an incident room that was set up. This is just people hanging out. What's going on? Yeah. It's fine to do those sort of things. Just don't whitewash it after the fact. That's the thing that makes you a scammer. You can own up to just about anything, throw a postmortem on it, say, hey, lessons learned, I'm sorry. Building the future of money, something, something, omelet, something, something, eggs. That's fine. When you lie about it after the fact, first, that stopped working in 2009 when Twitter became a thing. We have records of everything. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that and then the, the egregiousness of it all. Yeah. It's like we were all here. We watched all this happen. And that's what sort of pissed me off. I was like, this is not what happened. Like, here's proof. Like, here's screenshots that these people were advisors on these ICOs. People lost a shit ton of money. And, and again, it comes back to, and that's the, the beauty of that dichotomy of Bitcoin versus other projects is that Bitcoin, Bitcoiners in general, at least in my experience, like to uh, pontificate about extreme ownership. Like, you yeah. have extreme ownership of your keys. You have extreme ownership of your wealth once you have that, and you should be taking extreme ownership of your decisions and, and your actions at the end of the day. And just culturally, I think uh, that first principle and that mindset will set Bitcoin up for success in the long run, but it is severely lacking in other projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I understand the tension because there's sort of the conflict between managing something and then being able to say that it's decentralized. You want to be able to make sure that your project can grow. As an engineer, I get that you don't, you know, as a lead engineer in charge of that project, if I were in, in someone else's shoes, I might have made that call. But you're a centralized administrator at that point. Just own up to it. Say, hey, this science project that I'm working on, we had to uh, quit trading on it. Things broke. We found a bug. Software happens. It is what it is. It's the whitewashing after the fact that just is deeply unsettling. I don't know what to make of it. But to like to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, like there was there was some regulatory arbitrage going on, right? Like they had to they couldn't be completely honest because like a lot of people give like for instance Tezos, they give shit about um like they're saying it was a tote bag, right? Like you're making a donation, you're not actually buying anything. 
like Ethereum pioneered that and they had to do that because of regulations, right? Like they were doing the sale and they had to say like, Ethereum's not money, it's gas. It's all these things, but they knew it was a competing money the whole time, right? Yeah, and I get that, but here's my whole thing. And this is not judgment so much as pity. I wouldn't have made that decision. I would have uh, made the play that they made. But if I'm in their shoes and I have to play this game of regulatory arbitrage, I would use that window of time between when you make those statements before when the regulators come knocking, which they always do and they already have, right? to you know build some actual decentralized technology that would protect me from regulators. Where's your mixer? Where's your Tor relay? Right. Where's your? Instead, you're sending like Infura. lawyers and PR firms. That's not going to work here. And centralizing all the nodes and not yeah. giving a shit at all about exactly the what happened. Everyone talks about Vitalik being like a central point of failure for Ethereum. I don't care about Vitalik. What happens when the guy who's in charge of accounts receivable for Infura gets uh, on vacation when the bill is due? Or what happens when Jeff Bezos decides that like you well, can't have Ethereum nodes on AWS? So let's dive into this for people who might not be abreast <laughs> of the situation. I mean, it's very clear that... Well, it's not actually not very clear at all. What the fuck is an Ethereum full node, number one? And then number two... Nobody knows. Who's running them? And then number three, how, how what percentage of those full nodes are being run in centralized services like Infura? So for you freaks that don't know, Infura is a consensus-backed company, I believe. Yes. It's basically lets you... Will host Ethereum nodes on your behalf in Amazon Web Servers, basically. Most importantly, for like businesses and stuff, right? Yes. Like if you're running a Ethereum application and you you need a node in the background, you 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 task that out to Infura. Yeah, well, that's but I, that's if we're gonna give the Ethereum community credit, I think that's one thing they've done beautifully is sort of uh, confuse what a full node is in Ethereum world. Like, what God. would you consider? I'm not even going to get into that. I've seen the Twitter wars about whether an R-cable node is an actual full node. From my point of view, if you have to depend on anyone else to find the full history of the transaction chain, then you're something else besides a full node. You need to be able to, I know it's been referred to as the mountain mount scenario, but you need to be able to bootstrap a node up from scratch to be a functioning part of the peer-to-peer -peer network. It's just, that's you just how it is. You to be able to verify everything. Yes, exactly. Without any trusting uh, another counterparty. What is the mountain man? Sorry? What is the mountain man theory? Oh, uh, let me see if I quote this right. It's the idea that needing to run a full peer-to-peer -peer node is some weird mountain man uh, fantasy, is how I've heard it described. Like, you know, some weird, uh, what are those guys called? Preppers? The people who, yeah. yeah. Like some insanely... Uh, like a crazy paranoid person. Yeah. yeah. Mountain I, man. Yeah, which I don't get. I mean, it's pretty... I, I can't even describe the argument because I don't understand it. On a peer-to-peer -peer network, there is one type of node, a peer, pretty much. Those peers can do different things, but they all better be running the same software, doing and the same Bitcoin, stuff. In Bitcoin, we're all mountain men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this, that's like what I feel like the most effective attacks against Bitcoin have been, or at least sort of social attacks, like just framing like that and painting Bitcoin as mountain men and... Fascists, yeah. Fascists. Nazis. Yeah. And it's like, it's infuriating because it's like, uh, if you're working from first principles and you're trying to build a truly distributed decentralized system, like, this it, is the mountain men need to be able to run the nodes, right? Right. Like, and how do we get that across to people? I guess that's the crux of the question. Like, well, what do you need Infura to have their cords cut? Yes. Yeah. You need the nightmare scenario. And I don't want to believe that, but. 
the reference that I have for this is what it took for us, and we're still not fully migrated, but what it took for us to migrate from plain HTTP to HTTPS was Edward Snowden telling us that, hey, every single government in the world knows what point you're looking at. That's what got us to finally start taking end-to-end -end encryption on the web seriously in 2013. Before that, it was totally fine to have just plain text going across the web. That's so crazy. Yeah, we'd known it in for decades. it seems crazy. Yeah. Because we were young still at that, uh, me and Marty were young at that point, you know? Yeah. And that happened. And that, that was a big game changer for me was, was Snowden. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, look, if, if the U.S. government, let, let's be clear here. I mean, it comes down to really the U.S. government, right? Because if the U.S. government's fine with it, they'll provide sanctuary, so you'll be good for most situations. If the U.S. government is fine with Ethereum and is fine with them being very centralized and doesn't actually take action, then there's no reason for Bitcoin to exist. Like, the whole reason Bitcoin exists is because... We, we need to be immune from the strongest government in the world. If you're not sovereign resistant and you don't have to be sovereign resistant, like there's really no reason for Bitcoin to exist. So eventually we will get to the point, and I think it'll be more of a creeping type of situation where it'll just be, you just need KYC for everything. Like you want to like leverage up your ETH on DAI or whatever on Maker, like you have to do KYC for that. And like that'll probably be the people will realize they'll slowly realize especially people who live in iran and other places where they can't actually access it where right. they try and leverage up their eth and they're like i'm forbidden from doing this there's actually value in a permissionless protocol yeah it's going to take a while to get there i think but unless they see the the need for it firsthand i don't know how we get there i hope that i hope it's close to your scenario where it's a creeping realization as opposed to an abrupt like you know hey you should have actually taken care of this before this event happened. I just think like the Fred Wilsons of this world will not let it be an abrupt. The, it'll be more of a, you know, because there's so much money in ETH. Yeah. Right? It's so much U.S. American wealthy money in ETH that it can't be abrupt. Like they won't let it be abrupt. Fred's been seeming pretty down on Ethereum these days. Yeah, he's all in on kin now. I feel bad. I feel bad for dogpiling on these people. They've just suffered a very public sort of... Humiliation. Oh, yeah. Capitulation is not fun. Um, the reason I don't feel bad for Fred and the reason I called him out on this podcast is because he said that Kin is one of the most used cryptocurrencies in the world again. All right. I already called him out for it once. You had a Kin stand in your menchies yesterday. That is, I, I have the director of comms is probably a listener to this pod. Shout out, dude. I know. I Thanks know you're listening. listening. <laughs> he definitely follows me on Twitter and he's constantly in my fucking mentions. And it is absolutely ridiculous. There is no logical person on this fucking planet that's in this industry thinks that Kin is one of the most. They think it's more used than both a Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is like the most ridiculous claim that you can make. Like, I, yeah. like, I, don't, I don't care. Freaks. Don't give me numbers and bullshit. It's all gameable and, and, and you're full of fucking shit and you know it. I like to think we have a, a big enough sample cell. Uh, sample set of listeners out there. Freaks, if you've ever used Kick, uh, <laughs> please let us know. I've never met anybody that's used the app. Likewise. Yeah. I mean, Messenger apps are all about uh, network effects, right? Because like, I have like six installed on my phone. Um, and and Kick is not one of them. No. I Honestly, like, if they did an ICO, I would not know who they were. 
Likewise. I actually had it installed like six years ago. Well, that's so the, I would. That's I the didn't other, know who they that's were. That's the other fucked up thing about Kick. Like they acknowledged that too. Like it wasn't that like their last ditch effort in investors meeting was like we're running out of runway. <laughs> right. We have this new funding mechanism. We're gonna launch an ICO. They like semi semi acknowledge it. Yeah, it's uh, but again, it's snake oil salesman, man. They're they're but, among us. Do yeah. do do you think we have a a cycle, another? cycle whether it be an ico a shit coin ieo whatever it may be going forward do you think the market is learning do you think it's wisening up do you think uh, these quote-unquote protocol wars are close to being over i want to believe that they're over but i know deep down that they're not we're just going to keep iterating on the idea of what money is and there are so many different permutations of something that could be stupid enough to be some sort of money that you could put on the blockchain that I don't think we're done exploring anytime soon. I would never have seen, for example, any of the... Do I have to use the word stable coins? Sure, let's call them that. I would never have seen that coming. Why are you afraid to call them stable coins? They're... I mean... Okay. Because there's no such thing. There's no such animal. I mean, it's an over currency board with peer-to-peer participants who, again, have differing incentives and are maybe taking bets outside of the currency board. It's just a way to push fiat risk onto the margins of a lending contract, as far as I can tell. If you want to call that a stable coin, sure, it'll be stable right until it's not. Yeah, that's my favorite line is stable coins are inherently unstable Yeah, because they're susceptible to black swans. Like, yeah. The, so people are looking at DAI right now, Maker in particular, like if Ethereum falls below like 150. Well, like, crazy liquidation. DAI is particularly ridiculous because they're like the the issue with Bitcoin is that it's too volatile. So instead, you should take an you extremely volatile to... cryptocurrency asset and and leverage it up. You know what? What the fuck is that about? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and as somebody, and when I say I come from a finance background, like I am not tenured finance You're i just had jamie diamond i'm not jamie diamond i worked at a very niche type of fund and only for a few years but like again like even as somebody who was only a junior analyst and is not as intimately uh knowledgeable about the interworkings of of all the financial instruments that uh, exist in the world as more tenured fund managers or analysts may be even like the cursory knowledge that I, I developed over the course of that three, four years, you just look at these like p- products like Maker and all these synthetic products, and you're, they're just layering risk and systemic risk and levered risk. And it's like, this is exactly what we're trying to run away from. Yeah. And it, it blew, like, and, and that's why I try to not be as mean as I used to be towards Ethereans and particularly DeFi proponents, because I just honestly don't think they understand systemic risk well you should yeah. be more mean in bull markets that's my theory <laughs> when when they're getting wrecked like the numbers speak for themselves like they're just they're feeling it when they wake up in the morning they feel it you don't have to remind them is there a future in which DeFi works wow sure but only because we're just going to keep changing what DeFi means bitcoin is DeFi. bitcoin is actually DeFi. you can't have DeFi without the d part yeah you know that's the fucking issue here is they're pretending the d part exists when it doesn't fucking exist what are your so what are your thoughts on this whole synthetic i think you can never ever ever get rid of risk you can only move it around so if you ever find yourself dealing with an instrument where the people who's selling it are actually convinced that they've gotten the risk out of the equation 
run as far as fast as you can. I think the two, because I have to relate everything to some previous event apparently, the two things that come to mind, uh, right gut feeling, are George Soros breaking the Bank of England and breaking their currency peg. Mm -hmm. The lesson there was a motivated speculator against the most determined currency board in the world. The speculator always wins. Shout out to George Soros for initiating a speculative attack. (laughs) And the other thing I think of is long-term capital management, where all of their equations, all these Nobel Prize winners were absolutely convinced that they could essentially get rid of the risk and print money out of air. And that works right up until it doesn't. I think think the timing between when... Uh, Scholes won the Nobel and was awarded the Nobel and when LTCM collapsed were within like weeks of each other. <laughs> right? They yeah, were. Like, they were. Uh, and it was an epic collapse. Like, the, oh, net, yeah. And that's the, the other thing too. It's, uh, L, LTCM was built on credentials. We, yeah. have, we have the smartest engineers, the smartest economic uh, academics in the world working on this. Give us your money. We're yeah. going to trade it well. This all happened again in 2008. The Gaussian Coppola the yes the 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 equation that basically yeah. made sure that CDOs were always profitable or something like that right yeah these models all work great right up until they don't once you get in the very tail ends of human behavior nobody can model that yeah and it's well that's why that's why you should read your Taleb freaks uh, understand uh, the f- that you can be fooled by randomness that systemic risk exists and that. Uh, this shit can happen out of the blue. The black swans can, can fucking happen. Does Bitcoin suffer from systemic risk? I worry about things like what an effect an ETF would have or what... Why would an ETF be bad? Good question. I have a gut feeling. I don't know. My If I can explore that gut feeling, and I have... This might be bullshit. Yeah, let's, let's explore I have this gut bullshit. feeling, too. We actually talked about sure. this on IRHR tonight. Like... The people who just see Bitcoin as another ticker symbol and don't actually take possession of their coins and just take a bet on it might, in the event, might accidentally end up creating some form of autocorrelation where they're invested in, let's say, SPY and also Bitcoin because they're right. weird. And then so it becomes know, part of like my a whole mani- portfolio. And it becomes part of a, yeah. comes part of like a managed future strategy. Exactly. Where you're just a, a so, hedge risk. And then at some point they flip the risk off switch and say, nope, I'm all the cash. I don't know, I don't know if that feeling is silly or stupid because I've had a lot of silly, stupid feelings about Bitcoin. But that's my first thought. People making long leverage bets in the existing financial system somehow that impact the price of Bitcoin. But the key is, is that the Bitcoin supply is unchanged. If right. you run that's... your own node, everything is exactly the same as whether or not that ETF existed. Right. And then the last thing is, I mean, they're inevitable. So they're going to happen. So if if that's if that is a is that, if that's going to kill Bitcoin, then we're fucked. Oh, I don't think right? it will kill well, Bitcoin. I'd, I'd worry more about that. Not an ETF situation because like an ETF has uh, a certain perspective where it says, "Hey, this vehicle is meant to invest in this asset," and I don't think they reallocate much. Like if it's just a pure Bitcoin ETF, yeah. I don't think. But what reall- he's saying is, people will dump it regardless. Okay. Right? They dump it yeah. with all their other assets. Yeah, but then to your point, yeah, what does that really do? What's going to be a massive price drop? I feel like we've seen a couple of those. Do your worst, you know? That's yeah, It's almost better for like the long-term actual Bitcoiners, right? Then we just get to get in yeah. at a lower price. It's the thing about Bitcoin. You know, I can laugh at the bear well in retrospect, but I'm not looking forward to the next bear well, you know? I know we can get through it, but oh, man, 
Dude, Can he we was not? an idiot. He market sold at fucking three. Oh, he didn't market sell. Guys, he limit guys, ordered at $300. Craig's about to dump half a million Bitcoin on the market. All right. <laughs> we got to eat. The bear whale was nothing compared to this. Yeah. He's going to dump half a million and then yeah. Kleinman's going to dump the other half a million. Right. The thing that sticks with me about the bear whale is I had enough time to notice it. Go to Cryptog, grab a hot dog, come back, and that line on the graph was still going with 300 just straight across. Like, wow, this guy is going at it. What was it on Bitstamp? Yeah. I'm definitely going to forget to do this, but there's a YouTube video like uh, with some music. That was so good. The the slaying of the bear well. I'm telling you, I was not... I was in it on, in spirit. I was upvoting things on Reddit. I was responding. I was on IRC and stuff. But I was, in my, in my heart of hearts, I was like, fuck, I'm an idiot. And I was not <laughs> buying. I was not buying the bear well. In hindsight, like I should have just unloaded everything into, into that guy. Yeah. Right? Like $300 of Bitcoin. That's insane. What, what was the announce- price per sat? The price per sat was ridiculous. Because didn't, didn't he announce it on some forum, whether it be Bitcoin Talk no, or No, he Reddit? announced it by like putting 30,000 Bitcoin <laughs> for sale at $300 on Bitstamp. Uh, it was the worst way to unload, too. Well, like, the, if you yeah, wanted to it ripped price. right up to like 350 as soon as like that wall was done, didn't it? And then, but then we went down after that. Yeah. Because everyone spent their money on the bear well. I guess the... What I tell myself after the bear well is that the reason that all went down was to teach us to take advantage of other bear well, bear well opportunities. Like the big one, the next thing that came after the bear well to me was the, remember that weekend where BCH was like half a Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah we yeah. were talking about this the other day the when ninja Coinbase launch. Ninja launched. Yep. I was getting so many texts. Were you getting a lot of texts? Oh yeah, DMs, everything. I yeah. Imagine working at Barstool Sports when all this was going down. And Bitcoin Marty? Bitcoin Marty. Bitcoin Cash off. Marty? Are you going to have to arrange? <laughs> no. Well, I love Barstool. I love everybody I work with. But, like, that was the – they were – that office, the employees in that office were the perfect sample of retail money in that run-up. Like, and it was crazy because I started working there. Fuck, I believe it was, like, the beginning of November. Like, right when it passed 6,000. and went ripped from, like, November six. November 2017 you yes, started working there. Yeah. And – I, didn't I, I showed that. up like, oh, I'm the Bitcoin guy, like whatever. Like I wrote, I wrote the newsletter in the mornings before I went to work and was just like, if anybody had Bitcoin questions, they're like, oh, So do you think they me. partially hired you because you were smart enough oh, to love Bitcoin? 100%. Nice. Yeah. Um, it was a good resume item in November 2017. Great resume item. But it was crazy just being an observer, like seeing my coworkers who had just been exposed to this and how degenerate they were. I mean... Barcelona Sports is also known for being a company filled with degenerate gamblers as well. So it was very uh, part of the ethos. Yeah, part of the ethos that they were just. But like people were buying like Wan Chain, Iota, Tron. Oh my God. I like spent everything. five years. I shilled Bitcoin to a buddy of mine from college, oh and no. at my birthday. Oh no! I'm, I don't want to dox myself. My birthday was around that time period. Mm-hmm. And he shielded me Wan Chain. Wan Chain, Wan Chain, yes. whatever. Yeah, W-A-N. Yeah, I was like, I was I was like, like what is this? If you look at the website, too, it was like pure H. It looked like fucking Craigslist. I was like, are you kidding like- me? I've shielded you Bitcoin for five years, and you told me it was all bullshit. And then you come, and you dare shield me Wan Chain on my birthday. Are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? The audacity. Me? <laughs> but oh, that's perfect. We're still friends, though, because I'm a bigger person than that. You know, when people get wrecked, people get wrecked. Well, you can never let you can never let the like let Wan Chain the get coin economies get, get in between friendships. You <laughs> yeah, know, you can't do that. But 
and that's like what we're harping back to what we were talking about earlier like it is like thinking back to that time period and how enthralled uh the barstool office in particular got like it is easy to see that this shit could happen again like another mania yeah um it is definitely gonna happen again i will say that right now everyone is super excited about it not happening again like it's kind of Bottomish signals. I'm not saying I'm not calling a bottom because I mean, you're Fred a fucking Wilson idiot for calling a bottom. Is a pretty big bottom. Yeah, signal. I but yeah. but it's important. I think as like public facing Bitcoin figures to not cement our cement our line. Public here. facing Bitcoin figures. What the fuck is that? I, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, I fucking despise the term influencer. There's no influencers in Bitcoin. There shouldn't be any influencers in Bitcoin. Um, but we are like public facing Bitcoin figures. Like that's fucking what we are. It's true. You know, it's, it's happened facing. for better or worse. Cheerleaders as um, Eric Voskel would, would call I don't us. like cheerleaders. You called us cheerleaders. He didn't call <laughs> us cheerleaders. I didn't like that. He did that. Bag leaders. What Bitcoin is a cheerleader. I, I, I think we're, we're rational Bitcoiners. Like I don't, I think we're very, we acknowledge. We know what it is. We found our Bitcoins in. Yeah. We acknowledge the issues Bitcoin faces, but we understand that that is, our hope right like we need we need bitcoin to succeed if bitcoin doesn't succeed we have the penopticon we have um complete control over money we have you know servitude bitcoin, on a global scale bitcoin is hope and hope is uh one of the best things i love that we can have Shawshank. this frame of conversation at ten thousand. you can't talk about this shit at 100 because you sound insane Ten thousand, you're like yeah fuck you we're taking on the bis we're taking all the <laughs> banks your entire money supply you didn't believe me? Well, you didn't believe me at 100 either. We're 100x later. Eat a dick. Yeah, now we're talking about like global reserve <laughs> currency status yep. and shit, you know? Uh, That's a be- I I just gave a Bitcoin shill the other day uh, to my buddy who he, I'd been shilling it for like five years, but he finally acquiesced. And I was talking to him, I was like, look, like we don't even have to become the global reserve currency. We could just come close the gold market. and we're still we're still 10x we're still 20x you know and like that that was my argument my argument was but like under the global reserve currency and it yeah. was a completely reasonable argument it, i mean <laughs> it, it, it very much is but it's like again and so going back to the the conversation will this happen again how will it happen again but in your mind, like, what could we do to prevent something? Like that? Is there anything we could do to prevent it? Like, to prevent? It, yeah, like, is there an the onboarding of education, or is there any way in which people could learn the hard lessons that we learned in 2014 to 2016 without I having to go through it? I don't think so, and I'll give the two reasons why. Uh, the first is we like to believe that we are in a position to teach we're still, admit it to yourselves, I will admit to myself, we're still in the process of learning. 100%. Oh, absolutely. We're learning together. When did you guys start running your own full nodes, out of curiosity? My first one was the 21 computer. Um, that was such a fucking waste of money. But there was a, there was a big gap between that and <laughs> my next full node. I'm not even going to give a year. I think 2014, 2014. was when wow. I started running my own full node. But I wasn't using it to receive transactions. You know, you have to, you learn. You Likewise. Learn. Yeah. I did the whole, like, it's what you would learn if you were, like, if your model was Napster or BitTorrent. You're like, oh, I got the software running, and then right. I'm using Electrum to contact, to contact their own public servers, and that's sort of the same thing, yeah, right? I that's used how that Electrum works. for, like, a long time before I learned that whole public server thing. Yeah. But we're still in the process of learning, so expecting that other people won't go through that learning process. And greed, yeah. right? 
there'll always be greed yeah. and people will always and bitcoin is great that we we acknowledge greed exists and that we thrive on greed but the greed will also lead them into shit coins first and then it will bring them into bitcoin i agree with all this but, I, but what i'm trying like is there any way any particular pain point or area that we could sort of uh sort i'm looking for um, like sand down and smooth out and make it easier so it's like less confusing. Like maybe so it's less confusing. Maybe like the framing of hey, these are protocol wars and protocols historically consolidate on the one. The only thing I can think of would be if we could acquire the Bitcoin.com and Blockchain.com domains as well as the Bitcoin Twitter account and just point them to the white paper or something innocuous. Because right now the biggest problem that people have is that I uh, encounter is they'll Google it. Either the term Bitcoin or blockchain, and they'll land on Rogerverse site or the blockchain wallet. They're really? both they're both Rogerverse site. Super. He's a major investor. In yeah, yeah. Do you think it's that big of a hindrance? Sorry. Do you think those domains are that big of a hindrance? I think those are the biggest single actions you can take. There's a bunch of little small things. I mean, look, I just left the house and I read the news that there's been yet another gold-backed cryptocurrency launched. Yeah, Paxos did it this time. Super. We're just gonna have to keep iterating. Th- over and over through everyone realizing this is a bad idea. Like you're sometimes I forget when I just give them like the most basic response. Like it requires a trusted third party. So it doesn't compete with Bitcoin. Isn't like, that's an important response to give them because people don't realize still. Yeah. Right. Like they have to connect the dots. Like it's still very, very fucking early. Well, this actually just stoked a a line of thought. My mind uh, pertaining to you are about like, so you consider yourself a Greybeard distributed uh, systems engineer. Digigold was maybe the first. Was Digigold the attempt to tie gold to a digital currency? No, Digigold had nothing to do with gold. Liberty Res- was it Liberty? No. Liberty Reserve also had nothing to do nothing with gold. To, it was but what was the one that had on the dollar? What was the one that had to do with gold? Was there like a gold back one in the nineties? Uh, Chom. Chom. Ecash. Ecash. Yeah. Was that was. gold backed? Uh, you know, I don't remember because this was early enough in the internet days that somebody you could eat, well not. We were disconnected enough from each other, and Google was in such a state that you would like happen upon someone else's pet crypto project. You didn't have Google you know? yet, right? When was Google? No, Google was. Oh God, we were using Dogpile in the nineties. Well, this, this old is, man this is yeah. armed out over here. This is the I crux. Think. This is the crux of the question I was trying to get. Like, were you following cypherpunk monies in the nineties? In the nineties, I was a punk little kid who was showing up at all the hacker conferences, like DefCon and PumpCon and Hope. Um, and that's not the stuff we talked about. We were talking about hacking the phone system, man. Yeah, yeah, that was the big deal. Hacking so the phone free system. internet, right? Yeah. Freaks. <laughs> All right, this is going to be far ranging conversation, but let's take an even like step backward, like another step backward. Like, how did you get into engineering and hacking in particular? Like, what drew you towards that? Oh wow, uh, you know, it's sort of. I guess it ties together the whole. You're about to find the book thing as well. To why I read so much. Um, my parents worked odd hours between the hospital and the university. Oh man, I dox my parents. Oh no. My mom's a nurse. Giveaway. <laughs> um, All right. Everybody start filtering. Yeah. Start Googling. Um, and they would drop me off at the local library, and there was a computer that had Oregon Trail and a lot of books. And I fucking loved Oregon Trail. Okay, continue. I did too, but I kept dying of dysentery. Yeah, me too. That's what always happened. Yeah. You got to understand the trade-offs. That's yeah. A, that's you, a terrible way to go. Yeah, I I thought the game was all about like loading up on beef. Like I had like the most meat in my wagon, but everyone kept dying. I didn't realize that's what Bitcoin's about. I yeah, exactly. I didn't know at the time, but I was I was a, a fucking degenerate gambler, and I would always ford the river. 
because, <laughs> because whenever whenever there was a chance on, for like a high risk a high risk for the river, I would always take it because fuck it. Oh. Um, and one day I just got so frustrated with how bad I was at it that I busted out the hex editor and tried to see if I could like hack my way through. And that one thing led to another. Uh, I got a job at my first ISP in like 1995 when the job was like literally holding a fan in front of the modem bank because the modems were overheating. What? That was yeah. a job? That w- I mean, it shouldn't have been a job, but we just didn't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> this was back before we were talking. I was hearing like things in the news about DSL and cable modems, but that w- seemed like a distant dream. It was the days of like 28.8 and 14.4 Okay, bits per second, yeah, dial-up modems. Because we were at 50, like, we were born into 56. Wow. Was that the, like. yeah. What was AOL? Yeah, that was AOL. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And I guess one thing led to another. Um, it's strange thinking about it in the same way. We had the promise of an open internet back then, but we had to go through the entire AOL experience and then the internet experience on top of that before everyone sort of settled on and said, okay, just raw internet access for everyone. That seems to be the, just getting everyone this commodity is probably the most same business model. Yeah, for any of you younger freaks out there, I don't know if anybody remembers AOL kids, but like the AOL kid, like you could not type something into a URL bar, right? You like the, just, yeah. you we were just given, discs. you were given topics that you could click on. They would on. send us the floppy disks in the mail and then yeah. the regular disks. And this the is, floppy disks you could actually format I, and I downloaded AOL for our family. Uh, we got a free disk in the Millennium Backstreet Boys CD. Yeah. AOL was the, like the shitcoin of our times, right? That's a great example yeah. of a shitcoin. I mean, if someone... But it brought us in, right? It got me... It, it actually... That was the first I ever used the internet was through AOL. Yeah, me too. That's kind of sad, but I downloaded that's true. AOL on our gateway computer, our family desktop. Wow, old school. Yeah. Dude, you didn't get a Dell. <laughs> we did not get it though. <laughs> that dude was pissed at us. But like, that, this is a good topic to go into. Like AOL was popular. Like I remember chat rooms. Oh yeah, All chat rooms are huge. They fucked that. They they fumbled the ball there. You yeah. know. I mean, was, AIM, AIM survived. Beyond. It could have been. It was the first social network. Yeah. Right. Way ahead of time. But why did it fail in your mind? Well, this should be no surprise. Centralization. Uh, the problem with AOL was that it was America Online. Actually building out uh, an infrastructure to serve all of America if you're not a telecoms company already. I mean, there's a reason that the DSL companies and the cable companies are the ones that really won the ISP revolution. It's because they already had the existing infrastructure. All the cables were already laid and everything. If you're AOL, you're building on top of someone else's infrastructure. You have to rely on people dialing into your phone banks and your user experience depends on your ability to interoperate with the public plain old telephone system. Uh, the problem is you can't airdrop the same experience onto the entire United States, so you, so you have to start picking and choosing. And then once you start picking and choosing, now you have to start picking who you make happy. And it gets a game of trade-offs very quickly. You start choosing markets that you want to make happy and market segments. And ooh, AOL is better for moms than it is for kids. And, and where's the money coming from? And So is, is that also, something we observed? Like were, was AOL picking sections of the country or... They tried to no. They tried to do everything, but the thing is, you try to do everything as a centralized organization. You are bound to do some things well and some things not great. And eventually, you're going to overextend yourself. You're going to look for a merger, which they did with Time Warner, well, and that then, was like the worst merger ever. Yeah, and then it all goes downhill. Another from there. media company. I, they, uh, you know, they also didn't even try to like brace interoperability, right? Like, like oh, no. the whole like they there was commercials that would just show like the AOL keyword. 
right? Yeah. And you would just type in the keyword, no website needed or whatever. But but that was just completely closed silo, right? Like that's yeah. just AOL. That was, they didn't they didn't want an open internet. Oh, that was the vision. It was AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy and all these different walled gardens. Yeah. And the idea was essentially, I think I heard it described as, imagine if you could leverage a tax on vacuum tubes. That's what this is going to be like. Like everyone wanted to have their own toll road onto the information superhighway. So. And like trying to understand this like structurally, like what was happening when I was signing into AOL? Like, does AOL running a bunch of shit on okay. quasi AWS servers well, that AWS were giving me access exist, to information? Yeah. yeah, there was no AWS. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously yeah. not. Uh, so, Amazon wasn't a thing yet, but like. So you're booting up your gateway and you're starting up your modem software and you're dialing into AOL's phone bank. And on the other end, there is another modem that picks up the call and starts chatting back and forth. It's passing your data along to AOL's private servers. There are no other academic institutions or retailers or anyone else like the public internet that are all connected to each other. It's all owned by AOL. Now, there are different AOL content providers, let's call them. Some people are moderators, some is user-generated content, but it's all under AOL's uh, auspices. It's a lot like Twitter, actually. But imagine you had to like dial into Twitter, and while you were dialed in Twitter, by definition, you couldn't dial in anyone else because you only got one phone line. That actually, that subtle point sort of dictated a lot of the structure of it. It was their note. Yeah. Well, then you you found AOL sort of uh, manipulating the ways, like family was to get, would get multiple phone lines so they could be on the internet and talk on the phone at the same yeah. time. My favorite was when you would jump on AOL and someone was already on the phone line because it would just <laughs> jump into their, it would just jump into their conversation, the noise. Yeah. Ma, yeah. get off the phone. <laughs> I think what that's what really killed AOL was the rise of broadband, partly because it was faster and partly because suddenly multiple people could be on the computer without having to interrupt like you know, your ability to communicate to the outside world from and your you, house. You didn't need them. No. I remember my first time using non-AOL internet was when I was traveling, and I, had to, I, I went into the internet on a, like a hotel computer, and it was through Internet Explorer. And it was just, it was separate and we just, I, it was connected, you know, through, I think it was like DSL or whatever it was at the time. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> this is, this is something completely different than I, than I, I didn't know you could like do internet My, uh, without yeah. AOL. Like I was used to the closed very, garden. Very simple, uh, similar experience. My uncle was a techie, like very big into hardware, uh, still into hardware, but like he had Alta Vista and like that was my first browser experience outside of AOL was AltaVista. I was like, what the fuck? Like you can wow. just like type stuff and search it. Like AltaVista was Google before Google, correct? Yeah, I think Google was around but not big. I remember using AltaVista and Dogpile before I used Google, but I don't know whether that's... Uh, Ask Jeeves. You remember Ask Jeeves? Yeah, Ask Jeeves. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you never use Ask Jeeves? They taught us that in, in, in elementary school. I was, I was taught to ask Jeeves questions. Jeez. And then you had Yahoo. Yeah. <laughs> but it was all about marketing, right? Yeah, there was a lot of... It was all marketing, Close but what well, went out at the end of the day didn't really have any marketing, did it? No. I mean, at the end, all the dumb money dried up, I guess. There, we had to go again through this collective understanding of like what we want out of the internet. It was weird. Everyone in 1995 wanted to be on the internet, but in retrospect, we were all talking about hypertext and virtual reality. Hypertext is, you know, clickable links, basically. Mm -hmm. But we had a completely different idea. It was supposed to be like an internet-connected card catalog, which I guess is a way to talk about how we surf the web, quote-unquote. It... Yeah, like the concept of Xanadu and all that stuff was floating yeah. around as well. Like... 
it's this weird thing happens when you build network technology, everyone starts using it, and then you realize that, okay, you might want to build it for hypertext, but out of the 10,000 people that are uh, actually using your hypertext protocol, 9,999 of them are loading up Pornhub. <laughs> the internet is for porn. Well, then, like... That yeah. was a great musical. Yeah, that was in 2003, With that Avenue song. Avenue Q? Yeah, Avenue Q, and it was real talk. Like, the internet was for porn, mostly. Yeah, I watched it when I was a child. I, I think... It it helped shape me as an individual. <laughs> what is this? Avenue, Avenue Q, Q musical. Uh, it's PG thirteen Muppets. Let's say. Okay. Yeah. But on Broadway. Yes. Singing. It's the important part. I don't that think makes I ever it more saw. reputable. Yeah, it doesn't like meet the feebles. It's not. It never made its Muppets. way down to uh, the Chestnut Theater in Philly. No, no. And, uh, that's, that's one thing us New York Maximalists have going for us. Get all the great, uh, all the great plays. It, it, it definitely did shape me as as a as a youth. In what way? Uh, they said a lot of things that everyone knew, but no one said, you know, like the internet is for porn. Like, but Pornhub was one of the main, um, proponents for HTTPS. And then now they run their own VPN. They have a VPN. They're actually getting into climate change now. Did you see the <laughs> Yes. Recent? Did you see that? They recorded a porno on the, one of the dirtiest beaches in the right. world. And every time you view it, they... Uh, They're going to donate like a nickel they, or something. They plow the streets of Boston every time there's a storm. Genius. Well, and then you have Domino's fixing potholes as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very smart. Not that Domino's is in the porn business, but it's a private mm-hmm. business, a private yeah, entity. Pizza fixing. and porn, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there is. See, <laughs> these are all totally cool, but when uh, Tim Berners-Lee was coming up with the idea of the web, he never dreamt of any of this stuff, you know? What was he dreaming of? Just yeah. pure like information... Exactly. It was going to be math you know, problems being sent. A global scale university. There's, like it or not, Pornhub is where all the profit goes, and Wikipedia gets ignored. We have the opportunity for a global knowledge base, and we don't really want to fund it too much. Well, Wikipedia can go fuck itself. Oh right? shit! Here we go. He's got it, very strong. It got Wikipedia political, news. right? Yeah. It got political. It's not about open knowledge anymore. It's just about our boy David Gerard is a big Wikipedia yeah, guy. David Gerard yeah. is one of the moderators for crypto on Oof. on Wikipedia, so he he stunts us everywhere we go. <laughs> Hi, David. We know you're listening. But like, I hope I hope David Gerard's listening. He's He's the ultimate leather. success. Taking sub freaks to a new meaning. Him and Vitalik. Uh, I don't know who that guy is. I forgot. Um, yeah, but I I, I just. It's 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 pretty crazy when when you look back and you you try and decipher what everyone was envisioning. Everyone was off, right? Yeah. No one really knew, and you just try and build like as sound a protocol as possible, Absolutely. and then just like let humans figure it out yeah. going forward. I couldn't agree more. What have we figured out about these new monetary protocol that exists? Is protocol the plural protocol? It's protocols, 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 protocols. Yeah, you could say protocols. What have I figured out about them? What have we just what in general? Oh man, we're still figuring it out. Bring this. Here's here's the one big thing. Here's my big takeaway for you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, the ability to join and leave arbitrarily a global network that everyone else is attached to, and to transparently behave in however way you want to is extremely freeing. We have the ability, you can describe HTTP as an ability, as a protocol that allows you to transfer text back and forth to people across the world. That is one way to describe it. Requests and responses at a basic protocol level, it's pretty straightforward that you can just, you know, pass blobs of ASCII text back and forth to each other. It turns out what we do with that ASCII text is phenomenally important. 
Um, you're gonna, you're gonna. Well, you've heard already, but you're gonna be hearing a lot more in the future stories about people who are using Bitcoin for terrorism, and bi people who are using Bitcoin for drugs, and people who are using Bitcoin for porn. What you're gonna find out is that that's nothing to do with Bitcoin. Most people are actually really horrible people most of the time. I'm sorry, it is what it is. We're all like masturbating monkeys. There's a reason Pornhub is so popular. It, Silk Road popped never up for a reason. Off in my life, dude. Yeah, when will Pornhub become a sponsor of this podcast? We've just been right? shilling them this whole episode. <laughs> Pornhub, if people, you're listening. <laughs> I know you are. A protocol that connects people all around the world should allow them to express their hopes and dreams and deepest desires. And unfortunately, for most people most of the time, that's going to be gambling when it comes to money. People tend to gamble. They tend to spend it on drugs. They tend to make really poor financial decisions. Bitcoin's job is to not get in your way of doing that. It's not necessarily to enable you to give you a helping hand or throw a conference where we show you how to like, you know, buy, buy Ripple at the top. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's designated for no. the airwaves on CNBC, 4 p.m. Fast Money. Brian Kelly. Yeah. Shout out, not as coin, shout out Derek. Yeah. I think eventually we're going to gain an understanding at least that it's nothing to do with the web. It's a particular website that you should be focusing your ire on. You shouldn't be annoyed at Bitcoin. If you want to hate drugs, fine, but hate Silk Road 2.0. There's nothing about the underlying protocol that mandates that you use it to buy drugs. You can certainly, if you'd like, buy some Bitcoin, give it to the Red Cross. Congratulations. Good for you. You put a little bit more money in their pocket than would have gone to Stripe or whoever the payment processor would be. If you don't want to do that, that's fine too. If you want to judge people who are engaging in a different sort of behavior, okay, go ahead, feel free, but make sure you understand that the protocol only enables their behavior. It's the humans underneath that are actually in charge. Why do you think we, not we, but a lot of people are so driven to attach these use cases to the underlying protocol? Do you think it's a uh, misunderstanding or do you think it's nefarious? I think we dodged this earlier. We were going to talk about Bitcoiners and shitcoiners. Yeah, yeah, we did. Let's, Let's get okay. into it. So there's two schools of thought. There's the no-coiners and the shitcoiners. Pre-coiners are people who just maybe have like heard about it on TV but still haven't gotten their toes wet. We love our pre-coiners. Yeah. I like to think of my mom as a pre-coiner. In 2017, she hated Bitcoin. In 2018, she forgot about it. In 2019, she's asking me about it. It was just on the news for two weeks, you know, that crazy time in 2017. And so she watches the news after she gets home from work. So It was super important those two weeks. Yeah, exactly. For psych psychologically, it was super important. Yeah, My it, dad's like full-blown Bitcoiner now just because of those two weeks. Shout yeah. out Mr. Odell. Yeah, and, Mr. Odell. He checks, he checks the Bitcoin price more than me. Nice. He, he reached out the other day. He was like, I can't believe it's $17,000. And then we realized that he was talking about the volume. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's learning. He's working on it. So the pre-coiners aside, the no-coiners I see as the monetary version of neo-Luddism, which is, I guess, in turn, the Luddites back in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. These are people who were confronted with the initial pangs of the Industrial Revolution and realized they were on the wrong side of it and freaked out. People who realized they were going to be replaced by machines. That feeling is terrifying and they were the first ones to feel it the luddites and take action on it i guess i mean i suppose the first time you know we invented the lever in the wheel someone said oops i'm out of a job but the luddites were the real first I'm not organized giving piggyback rides anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the wheel was a shit coin right that's what they thought <laughs> nice so 
ever since then, we've been sort of teasing out how machines make us feel. And there's a certain school of thought, and this is tied into like, oh man, Wordsworth and Shelley and romanticism. You think it goes back to like, you know, the Matrix, man versus machine? Oh no, it goes earlier. It goes way earlier. I mean, Frankenstein? Yeah, that early. Hundreds of years ago. We've begun, we're still working through the process of figuring out how we interact with machines and how we feel about them, how they uh, affect our lives as human beings. We want, there's a certain core group of people who want to believe in some nostalgia for a past that never was, that was pre-machine, where everything is lush and green and verdant and we're back to nature and there's no emissions and no electricity usage, you know, no need for the electricity police even. Yeah, and people don't realize that there were like 10 foot high piles of like oysters on the side of the road and stuff yeah. like that inefficiencies but I, I interrupted go on these people at their core realize that they have something to lose uh, there was a lot of this during the internet bubble you should have seen how the travel agents howled when we just said that they wouldn't exist what's a travel agent exactly actually travel agents are coming back in vogue I know, but the rich people love them now yeah see that's how and they just book it on Travelocity or whatever Expedia that's how this technology works. 90% of it gets commoditized, and the other 10% turns full luxury. Because like, there's still some people who don't even want to log in a kayak, you know? Right. Like, oh, I, I got a kayak guy. They can do it for me. Exactly. Um, but bringing this back to, like, Bitcoin and the, the Luddites in the Bitcoin or the traditional monetary world, like, what is their, their fear? Traditional monetary? So there's two sorts of... Uh, no coiners that you see in the traditional monetary world. There are people who are too dyed in the wool to even appraise it on its face value. And I was one of those people. We talked about that at the beginning of this chat. Uh, and then there are people who are realizing not necessarily that Bitcoin is a threat, but that Bitcoin could make them obsolete. They don't realize it on those terms. It's more like, oh, this technology that I don't understand completely could make me irrelevant, I guess. It's the same... The travel Do you agents, think they even have that humility to recognize that yet? Sorry? Do you think a lot of them have that humility to recognize that yet? Or I think there's a deep sort of fear. The kind of fear that you that hits your belly when you smell smoke but you don't see fire. Like you can sense an existential threat through your career. Part of that comes especially to people who realize that their career is partly you bullshit. Know, yeah. If your career is centered around, say, working in the financial press and telling people who make poor financial decisions what they want to hear every day in the daily paper, Bitcoin is going to be a real downer for you because number goes up is just not something you can write an article for uh, five days a week. It's very repetitive. Yeah, exactly. I can Orange coin good, number goes up today. I'll tell you from experience. Yeah. Imagine, <laughs> imagine if you were in the job of like reading the tea leaves of every Federal Reserve meeting and every FOMC operation yeah. and showing up, and now instead you've got this two stanza line of code mm -hmm. that dictates the monetary emission schedule in perpetuity. How are you going to come to terms with that? You've, I mean, you've spent decades, maybe, of your life trying to figure out Fed speak, and now you're going to switch to this? It's not going to happen. But do you think that... Okay, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the no-corners actually own Bitcoin. So should we have, like, a delineation between... I don't between, think so. What, what, is there what, a delineation? Do you, have, do you have particular ones? Peter Schiff definitely owns Bitcoin. Obviously. Yeah, Rubini probably owns Bitcoin. Noriel, he probably owns Bitcoin. I'm more worried about the, the Krugmans of the world. Krugman probably doesn't own Bitcoin yes. because he didn't even see the... He but, just, uh, the so that, machine so the, the Krugman type, the type that is the dyed-in-the-wool uh, 
career academic economist who has built the models that are supposed to represent what our economy runs on, they are the Luddites that you're speaking to. Right. That's that's a deep sort of core belief for those people that there needs to be a leader for this sort of thing, a central person in charge, a missionary, whether it's the Federal Reserve, so as the lender of last resort, whether it's the Secretary of Treasury, there needs to be someone who has their finger on the pulse who knows something more about how money should work than everyone else does. Who knows something about irrational exuberance. Yeah, exactly. Um, taking that belief away from people is almost impossible. When they've anointed themselves as like the emperor of money, how are you going to take someone's personality disorder from them? <laughs> right? But it's... But also, like, how does the whole world, like, the like, how does the whole world become uh, beholden to these academics and their models for the way the world should work? The only way it works is if you stop worrying about money at all and just accept the base case, like your wages and what they come in, and treat money as an abstraction. Because once you go down the rabbit hole, I mean, you'll be thinking about it for years and starting up podcasts and whatnot. <laughs> it, it will obsess you and take yeah. over your life. Once, once you go down, what is money? Yeah, like it's pretty hard not to become a Bitcoiner, I think, and I think that's I the agree. key is like you bring him down. What is money, and then? Well, the point I'm trying to get at here, what I'm like clawing at here, is like, to us, obviously, they're clinging on to reputation more than anything. Yeah. It's ego. It's ego. What, what would it take? And might not again. They might be neo luddites where there's nothing that we could do to convince them and. Oh, they'll whitewash. They'll pivot. No, I, it's reeducation, right? Like they just learn by getting reeducation. 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 Oh, rectification. Yeah, they'll learn. They'll get wrecked. They'll get wrecked, and they'll eventually learn, right? Like they'll they'll watch they'll watch their dollars become worth. Once people start valuing their net worth in Bitcoin, they will watch it go down the fucking tubes until they jump. But in. our good friend Joe Weisenthal says nobody's going to do that. Like uh, I love Joe. Joe lives six blocks from me, just to just to dock myself further. So <laughs> getting into like the internet shit with him is sort of weird because I know like it's sort of like uh, Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman. Like mm-hmm. it's a fun thing, but I can't do that, dude. We're, I know we're going to get breakfast in a couple weeks. Come and on, you guys have met, oh. right? Yeah, yeah. We, and let me be clear too. I consider Joe a friend too. Have we? Is Joe been on the pod? Joe has been on the pod. Joe was on the pod about a year ago, probably exactly awesome. to like yeah. this week. I think I listened to that pod before RHR existed. Right. So yeah, yeah, it was last summer. Yeah, that was a great episode. And Joe, like, actually, one time I found myself at a dinner with you, oh, yeah, yeah, Arbdow, and Joe. Yeah. It was like the three of us sitting next to each other, and that was Joe. Like for his. Uh, for as much as he likes to instigate on Twitter, I think he's more of like a heel, like just trying to instigate people. But I think he has, as a journalist and as an economist, to, uh, an academic, not an academic, I'm trying to think of uh, words that could be uh, uh, complimentary. Academic and economist in the Bitcoin uh, world are, are derogatory. As somebody who, an intellectual, if he's you will. honest. So, yeah, exactly. He's somebody honest. who's trying to he's approach the dude. subject of money in an honest uh, in honest fashion, like I think he is a good critic. If you yeah, will. he's he's definitely got his ship post game down pat. I'll give him that. He's on uh, another ship post level. He triggered everybody with the negative interest rates. He, he, oh. he knows he knows how to Twitter. You know, yeah. he's very I mean, good. He's at been around Twitter. the block. He was an original FinTwit guy. Yeah, exactly. So I'm gonna say because uh, I've been waiting to spit this out. I'm gonna say no to the original question. Whether they're gonna not Joe necessarily, but Krugman and everyone else, whether they're going to come to their senses. And I'll give you some examples real quick okay. just to spin them off the dome. Yes, you remember please. Cliff Stahl talking about how the internet would be no more important than a fax machine? 
He's the canonical example of someone who said, that was Krugman, wasn't it? Um, no, Krugman was the fax machine. You're right. Cliff Stahl said it was going to be pointless. He had a different oh, I article. You said yeah. Krugman, yeah. yeah. Sorry. You're right. I'm mixing up my, my okay. no-netters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cliff Stahl is very famous for saying, yep, I got that really wrong. Oops, I goofed. And everyone sort of pat him on the back for it because, you know, sometimes you get things wrong. It is what it is. At least he admits it. Yeah, he right? owned it right up front. And basically it was very healthy saying, like, you know, I haven't really staked my self-worth on the idea that I'm going to write on everything, everything every single time. This seemed goofy at the start. Now I'm on the net. What do You, you want to break my balls? Right. That's one way. But most people don't have that sense of humility and self-esteem. There are two other routes that I can think of. One is there's a famous... And you can pull it up on YouTube. Uh, not now, but I'm saying it's, you can. There's a famous uh, segment from the Today Show in 1995 where they're talking about what is the internet, and they're just so. I saw this shit. It was yeah. great. The it A just, with the uh, the A with the at. Yeah, the at and sign is it called at? Yeah, and they're basically like, "What is going on here? What is this nonsense?" And there's very there's a lot of incredulity and mocking, but mostly it's treated as sort of a gimmick and a joke. They'll eventually come the people that were on that show eventually came to terms with the internet on their own time. There was no grand reckoning and they just sort of yeah. adopted it. I can confidently say I'm pretty sure Katie Carrick sent an email between now right. and then. Yeah. And that's, that's the third route. The people who were actually like hardcore, there were hardcore internet skeptics in the late 90s and early uh, 2000. They just pivoted from being skeptics about the internet to skeptics about technology. Instead of saying, oh, the internet never worked, now they're talking about the 737 Max and automated software failing. At no point in time are they going to have that higher level of like, oh, wait, maybe I should rethink my priors. They just don't have that in them. Once you dig that far in, it's, I think we've talked about other people like that in the podcast earlier. At a certain point, it stops making sense to try to rehabilitate yourself, and you start saying, okay, well, I'm in the bunker. Maybe I can angle for a nicer room in the bunker. Maybe I can get a night with Ava Braun. Who knows? Right? <laughs> yeah, you make it part of your brand. You just make it part of your brand. Exactly. I, I, I think the key here is, is when, <laughs> oh, when I was growing up on the internet, like I never questioned how like the internet worked or anything. I, I, I had no knowledge of, of whether or not this internet was like the proper game they... theory or the proper this or the proper that. Like I just... It was magic. I just yeah. signed on to the internet, and I, I was I was there to go. And I think like that's what's going to happen with Bitcoin is just the generational shift. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like when you have young people, they'll just come in. They'll be like, "Well, Bitcoin is like that's just it, right?" Yeah. Like just to quote Russell. Uh, Okun. Shout out Russell Kuhn. Like, yeah. Uh, and shout out Beautyon as well. Beautyon. Yeah, is Bitcoin is beauty, and he yeah. is the biggest proponent, and probably like. Beauty on, I know you're probably not listening. Actually. Oh, that would be so amazing. But like, just all just he is, pants. he first. So the way Beauty on views Bitcoin is Bitcoin is code. It is a protocol. It is speech at the end of the day. Like he gets pissed off when people try to equate Bitcoin to money. Yeah. Let alone something like you guilty like, that you give like very guilty. But like the, the, he is somebody that I think has been through the, the ringer of protocol rule wars and the internet and, is very keen on describing Bitcoin in a very specific way, and it will become obvious to to future generations. It's not obvious to us now that it works in this way, but it is a protocol. It allows you to exchange messages. It's a gossip network that you can send transactions through, and yes, we imbue uh, value on those transactions, but at the end of the day, the protocol is just dumb, and it works, and it has rules that you have to abide by. Yeah. I don't know what I was trying to say, but, there, but. I, I feel like part of Beauty on Stick is that he's actually 
he's like fighting the regulatory arbitrage battle and he yeah. just refuses to ever acknowledge that he's not fighting the regulatory arbitrage battle. Like if I was in court, Bitcoin is speech. Like absolutely, right? But if I'm like on the shill stage, Bitcoin is better money. Like that's what it is, right? So so it's it's like we can't admit because of our regulatory overlords, we can't admit that Bitcoin is money. We have to we have to pretend that it's only code and it's only speech and it's only this and it's only that. Well, right? here's where I was trying to go with it. At this point, like, so, so that even even that conversation, a code of speech, like it was just settled in the early 90s, which, yes, yeah, seems far away to us. But in the whole, like not even the Bitcoin scheme of things, like the Internet scheme of things, we're still pretty early on. Right. Like, yeah, we were only. Well, we've had our first Internet native generation. We're 10 years in now into the mobile scene. 5G isn't even here yet. 5G. Yeah. My dad showed me 5G the other day. But like, He's like, it's the future, man. It's the future. How how much more is this going to change? Not only in our lifetimes, but like over the next set. Like I, obviously, we can't predict this or know how it will change. But like, how well, drastically is our life going to change? When I say I don't know, what I mean is, twenty years ago, I was content to like download MIDI ripoffs of the music that I listened to, like music versions, and now everyone has the tricorders from Star Trek carrying around with twenty four seven access to satellites. I don't know where that happens in another 20-year scale. Um, but, God, I'm actually going to use the word network effects. Uh, the consequences of everyone, every smart person in the world suddenly being drawn to this communication medium so they can interact with every other smart person in the world to build cool shit. Weird shit that I can't even imagine, man. I will be annoyed if we don't have a holodeck before I die. That better happen. We better be able to like beam me to the Great Wall of China. Well... That's another qu- like another line of thinking that just happened. I'm drunk, by the way. We're nice. way through this knob. Yeah, halfway, hang halfway. on. Let's do a quick check of the. This is the knob creek bottle that I brought as a present. Halfway this through, almost. Halfway through a handle. The Not supply bad. is the supply has been decreased. Cheers. But it's. Uh, I forget what I, I just lost my train of thought. But uh, I apologize. Well, we were we were transporting around the world through yeah. decks. Yes, through holodecks, but like, ah, fuck, I forgot what I was going to get. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. But like, I want to like keep on this future thinking thread here. Like, are we just a stepping stone for, so like you said, we have one generation yeah. for the internet. Like one generation has gone through the internet age and now we're stepping into another generation. We're 10 years into the mobile phone sort of proliferation happening, like. How weird does this shit get? Because it's gotten pretty weird in my lifetime alone. It'll get super weird. I mean, how weird do you want to, how deep do you want to uh, interpret the internet? Put yeah. it this way. Let's get as deep as possible. Okay. 1973 NSFNet, people talking about packet switching. Sure. That could be seen as like the genesis of the internet. But go deeper. In order to need an internet, uh, build an internet, you need to build a telephone network. You need to have a way to connect people end to end and transmit data across wires. That's like 1850s. Uh, go back before then, you need to have a way to represent text. So we're talking about like the printing press, the invention of writing, all of that has just been an endless march from when we first started being able to understand how to mass produce text, all the way to transmitting it end to end, all the way to where we are now. Where is it going to stop? I don't know, the limits of human appetite. I don't know where that is. All the energy in the known universe? 
Yeah. Is that what our appetite has? Maybe. I mean, that's... Look, the heat death of the universe is going to come one way or the other. Do you want it to be really cool, or do you just want it to wash over Consume you? Consume you. Uh. Yeah, Matt Green uh, of Zcash fame uh, <laughs> tweeted out today. He was like, how much Bitcoin POW energy is enough? Like, how much is needed? And I just wanted to respond, like, 63%. So I, I don't know. I just, I just felt like that was, like, a good number... That sounds like the amount right. of energy that that we consume. They they were too busy. They're too busy fighting over whether or not who gets control of the Zcash trademark. To uh, <laughs> that they, or the they might as well word. fud Bitcoin while they're at it, right? Like just go with a little bit of fud. I love the energy trolls. That's a big part of the whole back to nature neo-Luddism thing. Like this idea that energy usage is bad. I might be able to buy that emissions are bad in certain locations, or at least talk about it. But just the idea that. You know, if you and I decided to set up an offshore wind farm and slap a bunch of bases around it and say, oh, it's taking up however many megawatts, why is that bad by itself? Yeah, it's, exactly. You're killing the environment. Tell me, like, what your problem is with this so I can at least begin to think about fixing it, but just saying, electricity bad. Okay. Well, all right, let's jump into this. Like, the world today, like... I love you, Marty. It just does not have first principle mindset thinking. Like, people just take, oh, you're consuming so many megawatts of energy... Therefore, you are wasting energy. That's the first assumption that people make. And then they don't even take into consideration the source of the energy, the efficiencies that are made. And it's just this culture of... And, and maybe the culture that we have grown up in in Bitcoin Twitter is a part of that, but like just like seeing a tweet and being like, this is the way the world works. Yeah. It's, Large numbers have a great way of focusing people's attention. That's one thing that the Scambrian Explosion taught me. When you say like... I don't even have any sense of scale of what one megawatt is versus 10 versus 100 in terms of how many homes that is. I mean, I, I have a general, but when you say 100 megawatts, like, wow, that's a lot. That's something I should have a feeling about, an emotion, an opinion, something I should weigh in on. I mean, really, most people should just ignore that sort of tweet and move on with their lives. But we have this deep, innate desire to like focus around these metrics and then chime in with our own two cents. I don't know why. I, every, every metric I come up with for trying to measure the Bitcoin network, good or bad, a week goes by and I'm like, well, that's a bullshit number. I can't imagine what it's like being Nick Carter having to come up with like actual like viable <laughs> metrics. God bless him. He's doing the Lord's work. We, yeah, we love Nick. Have you met Nick? Yeah, yeah, I met Nick once in person. Nick he, is great. Yeah. Nick is one of our boys. He's an actual boy. Not Go just sign up someone. for the Coin Metrics uh, newsletter if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah, we actually shilled it last RHR, but we didn't record. So then when we re-recorded, <laughs> we did not shill. So the, we're shilling it now yeah, on the so 100th episode. Subscribe. It's very good. You know, there's a lot of people that that have paid newsletters, that have paid subscriptions and stuff. But one of the beauties of the space is that there's so much free knowledge available. And, you know, I think Marty's Bent is fantastic. I mean, it is part of the Fuck TFTC yeah. brand. So, like, I'm kind of shilling that. And But it is fantastic. And the, literally the only two newsletters I subscribe to are, are Marty's Bent and Coinmetrics. Uh, and Optech. Oh, so. and Optech. And Optech. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I forgot about Optech. That was not uh, yeah. intentional. God Gentlemen, bless you, David Hart. Optech is. I hate to be a cheesy host right now, but I'm gonna go take a pee. I'll be right But they're back. all free, and the key is they're all free. And if you pay three hundred dollars a year for whatever shitty newsletter you have, like you're getting ripped off. Is, yeah, that's how I feel. Likewise. So we have no Marty. We have no Marty. Oh man, Marty's out of the room. What, what, what? are we gonna talk about? Uh, hmm. Shit, there's nothing I would say with Marty not in the room that I wouldn't say with Marty in the room. Do you, the thing. <laughs> so do you think, um, 
I was kind of judging from your earlier statements, the fixed supply isn't as as important as as the known supply, right? Would you say like if Satoshi had created a situation where it was one percent inflation forever, but we knew it was one percent inflation ever and it was and was fixed, that wouldn't be an issue. Not necessarily. If it were clearly understandable, and mm, actually, Is you know it what? Still dirty. It's still too dirty. Here's the thing. I'd have to know. I don't think it feels dirty. I'd have to know who that one percent inflation was benefiting specifically. Because there's it would be to miners. It would be to miners as per Bitcoin's. So instead, we're, instead of a decreasing supply every four years, we're talking about there'd slightly. be like a fixed tail emission for Bitcoin. Oof, that's a good question. Okay. Qualified, yes. It wouldn't be a deal breaker, but it yeah. kills a lot of the value But problem. it doesn't really matter now because yeah. it's too late now. Now yeah. we have 21 million. That's our, yeah. that's our fixed amount. As, as long as it's set in stone and everyone but, understands it, that's the big... Right. The important part is actually knowing what it's going to be, what, what that supply is going to be. Right. You all agree what it is. You all agree it can't be changed. There's no fucking with it. I'm still not... I don't know. That's an interesting question because I don't know if you had even a little bit of inflation where they would have attracted the hardcore holders of last resorts. I think it would have. I think it yeah? still would have because they would have known like, okay, it decreases up into a point and then it's 1% forever. I so it buy still it. would have because it's yeah. still basically fixed, right? Right. Essentially. It's, Back from my peer, are we talking inflation yeah. schedules right now? The oh, second yeah. well, you left, the second you left, I was like, <laughs> "We're gonna attack the twenty-one million fixed supply." <laughs> like, I, I didn't know what to talk about, so I was just like, "I'm gonna put our dad on the spot, and we're gonna fucking do it." Thankfully, it was just a number one, man. If it were number two, we'd have changed the proof of work by now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good thing you came here. back, dude. That was a quick. Can piss. I put my two cents in here? Did you stack sats while you ripped the piss? That's the question. That's the question. Everyone, I should have. I'll stack sats now in repentance. But are you worried about emissions still? Or the uh, lack of emissions. Oh, that's though. not what I asked him, but that is another good follow-up question. Not particularly worried now. Uh, I think what we saw during the moments of the worst congestion was that fees are more than enough income for miners to live off of. I'm sure that will be the reality when the reward supply drops. Yeah, and who who said it this week? Was it Mr. Hoddle? No, who how said about, that he's actually bullish on fees being bigger in the U.S. dollar. But, but how about Voskul's comment? Let's talk about Voskul. So they, yeah, so, so Eric, we, had, we had Eric Voskul in for a conversation last week, and he's he's worried about dust. The dust limit. Yes. The, so the dust limit goes up as fees. If, if the fee is higher than the amount of Bitcoin you own in a UTXO, then you can't spend that UTXO without right. losing the whole UTXO, right? right? So is that something we should be concerned about? What when is I, your answer? When I think of things like that, and I realize this is going to sound a little bit of like a deus ex machina, but give me some rope. Um, are you familiar with Jeremy Rubin's OP Secure the Bag proposal? It's a new op code. I have not, no. Um, basically, it allows a mechanism for you to... Sorry, did you want to... No, continue. There's, he's proposing a new op code that will allow you to leverage Taproot and Mast to commit different UTXOs to different branches in a Taproot script in a big O of one operation. It's not the same thing as like distributing a bunch of different UTXOs to different addresses, but it's... You're able to consolidate your strategies per byte. Yeah, and the idea is to use it as a congestion control mechanism so that you could have this one transaction that everyone says, okay, well, we all agree that these UTXOs are committed to these different branches, but they're not spendable. You actually have to expand the transaction later when there's 
ideally when their fees are low enough for you to do so. So you wait. Yeah. I yeah. think of things like that. At a high level, I think our understanding of what the mempool is going to be is going to change. But like, why is, why is this a problem, for example, in a world where everyone is using open dimes in a hypothetical world where that exists? Is it a problem? Well, that's a safe Well, that, that's actually funny we bring the subject up because I uh, had James O'Byrne over last night. We, uh, we just a chill. Just a, we had a. Well, thanks uh, for the invite, bro. Oh, sorry, bro. <laughs> uh, no, we had a. Uh, I owed him a steak, and I. Uh, Classic Bitcoin situation. I, uh, nice. I made good on that bet last night, but I brought this. this is, I brought up our Eric Eric Bosco conversation. This point in particular, and he seems to think so. Again, the crux of the problem is Bitcoin will get to a point if fees rise that uh, a lot of the Bitcoin in people's personal wallets will be considered dust where it's, yeah. it's not spendable. Fees are $10,000. Yeah, the, anything the fees are greater than what you would spend so, and, or prohibitively expensive to what you would be trying to move. And, um, which is obviously something we should be worried about. And it is a, a limitation of the system. Like there will be like dust exists right now. There are some UTXOs that are unspendable. Actually, that's pro- probably not right. It's now. like under 200 SAS or something. Yeah. In December, right. 2017, there was more dust than there is right now. But, okay. uh, James seems to think that, yeah, like if we are to assume that everybody in Bitcoin is economically rational people, which they aren't though, which I would, agree with to a point and I'm not I'm not making this case but right. uh, economically rational actors would see uh, dust limits coming and, and consolidate UTXOs but they weren't ready like Coinbase wasn't ready like there was right. a situation there where if the fee crisis continued Coinbase was gonna like lose a shit ton of money yeah it could be possibly that. insolvent and they like they got saved there because the fees came back down how ridiculous is that I like, cannot believe that we went through that entire fiasco years of arguing back and forth with everyone and then after the fact they were like all right well now it's time to start batching transactions (laughs) (laughs) seriously (laughs) no we just want to brute force double the size of the block size uh but we could always raise the block size i mean that's one thing we didn't talk about with eric like that's true block size could raise if it needed to be raised and it wasn't like going to destroy our censorship it's the last resort but I'd, i'd like to think there's other Again, economically driven solutions to the dust okay. problem. You're not going to like my answer, but you brought me on here to have like the old Greybeard Network guy tell you old yeah. Greybeard Network stories. Yeah, we need old man arbed out. So here's old man arbed out. <laughs> this is a true thing. Um, back in the day, if you wanted to get IP address space, you need to get IP blocks of IP addresses to be on the internet. You need to get a block of IP addresses allocated to you, and they're sort of like phone number banks, let's say, and you assign them to your computers. That's how you get on the public internet by having these addresses and being able to route them to other people and announce them to other people using a routing protocol called BGP. That's already too much uh, detail. I'll try to zoom it out. Back in the day, it used to be just this one guy who you asked for IP addresses. And everyone trusted him because he was so fucking cool. John Postel, rest in peace. What a good dude. What was was interacting with John Postel like? You know, I only emailed him once and he passed away three months later. So he was a really cool guy. Um, he was beloved. He was known as he's was the IANA, the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority. That was his title. Now it's an organization. Um, yeah, the, I know about IANA. Yeah, he he was the guy who basically kept track of all the port numbers for different protocols and different IP addresses. Anyway, the process eventually shifted, and the people who were originally uh, used to just asking for IP addresses and getting them were a little bit cranky about it. And the network evolved, and the network evolved. 
eventually you get to the point where the existing network infrastructure doesn't work. So many people are joining that you need to have layers, but nobody really agrees on what those layers should be or look like other than that, you know, we know what the, the core, what we call the default free zone, what the core, I don't want to use the word mempool, it's not the same thing, but BGP route table should look like. And we all agree that everyone's networks outside of the core internet should be their own business. We built all these sorts of different hackarounds to get around the fact that we didn't have enough address space to go around. We built network address translation gateways, NATs. Everything uh, NAT. runs in NAT. Yeah, everything is behind layers and layers of NATs. And now there's carrier-grade NAT and port NAT and static NAT, just NATs on NATs, which are a nightmare to debug, which is why I have this pain look on my face. Uh, we built Cloudflare, which is an entire organization that is dedicated to man in the middling half of the internet's traffic, I guess. There's no other word for it. They're, Cloudflare? Uh, yeah, they're a CDN, and the idea is you put a proxies, their proxy servers in front of your origin all around the world to speed up your website. Makes sense, but also, you're man in the middling. That is what it is. They're in charge of the HTTPS SSL termination, and they how forward... Much, how many websites does Cloudflare service now? A significant portion Percentage of Percentage-wise, what do you think, like 60% or something crazy? I think it's like, it's up there. I, it's high. More than 30, I want to say. How I, easy is it to DDoS a site, like... That's the thing. That's the reason that they've attracted so much, uh, uh, so much usage. They're really good at standing up to DDoSs versus basically the. And they have a free model. Yeah. Which is key, the freemium thing. Yeah, you can just point and click and be up on Cloudflare. Uh, outside of Cloudflare, trying to stand up to like a hundred gig DDoS attack is impossible. You'd have to provision so much extra capacity. But because they're running a global network with so much capacity, they can. But like all these sites being DDoS, like, or are they just hedging? potential hedging DDoS. I mean you might be DDoS one well a lot of the reason you use a CDN is not hedging like, DDoS like does TFTC.io need to be worried about a DDoS like, no you're probably using cloud for speed it's faster delivery to be on all these different cache yeah, servers all around the world DDoS, that'd be dope yeah please DDoS yeah. Wait, that'd be such good publicity they're trying to censor us that'd be awesome yeah, there you go. You should go, to, you should go full tour, actually. I don't think you'll... Well, that's still DDoS. Why issues. don't we have an onion address? Let's have we're uh, we're going to be tour compatible by the end of the weekend. There the you go. There you go. Yeah. It's a shame it. someone stole your nodal box, man. That could have been on tour. I know. That really... Now it's on tour. The the thief was good enough to put it on tour. Which is well, at least they really have that going for them. <laughs> Thanks for the recommendation, by the way. I'm, I'm loving my nodal box. The, the noddle is fucking noddle. dope. Noddle. Shit, yeah. Nodal, noddle. We, we pronounce it both ways. Noddle. You're, you're welcome to pronounce it. I'm a noddle guy. Yeah. I I only started pronouncing HODL after Parabolic Trap was he was the <laughs> one who pronounced it HODL. I was always a HODL guy before HODL. that. I'm still a HODL guy. And now everything is HODL and NODL. I just you know, it doesn't matter that he disappeared on us during the bear market. It's just how my pronunciation <laughs> works. You want to talk about yes. a a comeback tweet gif? With Parabolic them. Trap had the best one. Robert was De Niro. Robert De Niro yeah. like no, it was no, it wasn't Robert De Niro. It was um, it was Robert De Niro. No, it was uh, um, gosh, why is his name escaping me right now? You can't anger dunk management. On me. Can't dunk on me if you don't. The departed. Drawing a blank, man. Uh, not De Niro. Oh, the freaks are yelling at us right now. Oh my god, they're so angry at us. Please do not unsubscribe. <laughs> Just write a review, five stars about how we were wrong. Why can't know? I think of his name right now? You have a Greek. laptop in front of you. Look at it. I'm this is starting sure to get Robert De Niro. <laughs> Come on. No, like it's now. not Robert De Niro. I'm telling you. This is, is going to be edited Robert out. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Oh, my oh, God. Jack. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry, freaks. 
Please don't unsubscribe. Marty had nothing to do with this. Oh wow, that was baby. right. It's his baby. Don't get don't get angry. That was the best comeback tweet. Like Parabolic Trav went went dark. Fuck, I can't. He had I like called him Robert De Niro. For he like, had a lot of people up. trolling him though. There was like Anabolic Trav. There was Parabolic Chad. There was a there bunch was, of forks. Yeah. yeah, Logarithmic Trad. Larry C Mac. <laughs> bunch of a uh, bunch of people coming up Parabolic Trav. Yeah, if you try to drop draw parabolas. Uh, you're gonna get yelled at sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, the problem was that he was. He... Good. We love you, bro. But like, you were selling courses on like the parabola, and then you like disappeared in the bear market. Like you, like that's a little bit fucked up, you know. You got to shit post all the way through. It is what it is. It's yeah. You, we were from... here. We were here. We stayed through the bear market. Yeah. You know. We all did. Stay humble. Stack sats. Like we exactly. We we told people the right way. You're from just outside of Philly, right? Yeah. All right, so you've seen Rocky once or twice. A couple it's, times. It's not about winning. It's about you just want to show I'm not a bum. You got to hang out all 15 rounds, man. You gotta, it's about the montage. It's about yeah. the pride. You got to be there it's for the montage. The, the integrity of, of the, the human, the person that you are at your core. It's about being true to yourself. <laughs> and that's what Bitcoin is. <laughs> for the record, anyone who's not here right now watching this, he's got the biggest shitty grin on his face. <laughs> Adam Back was, I tweeted this to Adam Back yesterday. He was asking, like, why are the memes so dank with Bitcoin versus everyone else? I don't get it. And I was like, because of what we all went through. Like, how can you not laugh through that, you know? It was just so ridiculous watching it go from, we like. We all got wrecked multiple times. Are we about times. to be kind right now? Like, what should we tell our shitcoin brethren if we even are to status them as brethren? It's never too to late to renounce yourself and just stay humble and stack sats. All right, this is one thing, the the pressing topic that I've been wanting to get with. Oh, boy. You, there's something you had on your chest that you're... Is ETH 2.0 ever going to happen? <laughs> is it a second system syndrome victim? That's what it feels like. Um, so can you describe the second sin, uh, system syndrome? Second system syndrome is what happens when you're convinced you've learned all of the lessons from the first system that you broke, and you try to make sure all of them are baked into your second iteration. And the problem is you're, the first system is a constant learning process. The things you learn about it when your first 10 users show up versus your first 100 versus your first 1,000 versus when you know, your first 500 churn off and you're back down to 500 back and forth, they're all different lessons. So the classical second system syndrome fallacy is thinking that the learning process is done not actually appreciating that it isn't. And so what you end up on your hands with is a constant science experiment that never quite gets out the door because you're always learning. You're always trying to incorporate the things you're learning over and over. One of two things is going to happen. Eventually, someone's going to put a hard cutoff release date. And since you're not actually being done learning before the cutoff release date happens, you're going to learn those lessons on the fly. Or they're not, and it's going to be a perpetual science research project. If you want to know what that looks like in practice for existing protocols, let's see... Ethereum. <laughs> well, I was going to say networking protocols. There's, there's the I2P project, which is actually a great research project. Uh, what is going too. on with I2P? Uh, you know, it's in this weird space in between not Tor and not CJDNS. It's not yeah. that it's bad. It's just you have to be like, if you're, look, if you're an academic working in like UConn or UCLA or someplace that has a decent networking department that'll fund you for years, I2P is what you're fooling on. Uh, no one's using it, right? Not really. That's no. the issue. Yeah. I mean, the the key with Tor is that you have the foundation like actually making it's, shit happen, right? Exactly. And it's sort of a one of the tricky things about protocol development. It, you can't, either they sort of 
spring out of the ether, Satoshi style, Vince Cerf style, just weird science project that everyone says, eh, good enough, I'm using this now. Yeah. Or it's just this endless thing. The thing about the Tor Foundation pushing things toward is how long does that work? How long does that last? Eventually, either the protocol has to ossify and everyone has their hands off. or Tor, it's just in particular? Yeah. I, the, which but I think Tor's Tor, been working pretty Yeah, well, I think Tor right? is great, by the way, yeah. But, like, I, I remember when I first started Bitcoin or, like, so, like, I, the Snowden revelations was a big deal for me, right? I yeah. was, like, I, I came to the conclusion that we were, like, serfs, right? Yeah. Like, that we had to, like, take back our own sovereignty. And it was, it, in a lot of ways, it was pre-Bitcoin, but it was at the same time as Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, and all the people in my circle that I was communicating with, I didn't know who they were and whatnot, but it was just all online. They were all like, I2P is the future. We're going to go to I2P. Here I am five years later, six years later, no one uses I2P, right? Yeah. Uh, we all use Tor. <laughs> it's pretty secure, right? It's mm-hmm. like secure enough. Uh, the key there is, is usage, right? It's exactly. like actual people using it. And Tor has made it, the foundation specifically has made it very easy for someone to install the Tor browser. At this point, you don't even need a separate client. You're just installing the browser and you're running it. Or if you're using Tails, which is dope as fuck. That's the key, Tails, right? yeah. You're using that. It all goes through, goes through Tor and you don't even have to think about it. That doesn't exist for I2P. There's no way to easily stick a USB into my computer and, and switch over. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head right there. It, this is a core part. It's funny how everyone talks about like network effects and what they really want to talk about is like, well, they say Metcalf's law, but they really want to talk about number go up. You know, uh, This is actually a, a core network effect that you just identified, switching costs. What are the switching costs for adopting a new protocol? For ITP, they're too high because there's no, like you said, people don't really even think about Tor so much. They think about tails and anonymity, and it just ha- so happens to be Tor is the best way to enable that. It's the easiest way to right. get there. Since there's no easy way to get a bunch of people onto ITP really quick, that's the first problem. The second is the incentives for using it. Your favorite darknet site probably has an Onion uh, hidden service. Do you know how to get to whatever darknet market using the ITP? Do they even have those? No, I, like I'm the one who's supposed to be educating people on how to yeah. do that. I don't even know how to fucking do that. Yeah. So I think that's where Tor beats out alternatives like I2P and CJDNS. Um, but all these, as cool as Tor is, it's still like a geeky, nerdy science research product. The Tor is not going to see mainstream adoption now or probably anytime soon. Unfortunately, most people, these days right now, most people seem to prefer centralized VPN providers. I'm not saying that's good. I would actually prefer more people to be using Tor and the Tor browser well, VPNs are good too. They it's are for what they are. Yeah. Too much. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I, both, man. Both. You gotta. What's What's also promising too is, again, using more Bitcoin products now and downloading more software that's related to Bitcoin. A lot of like Pierre's No Launcher, Wasabi. They're just native Sats app. Well, no, no. Pierre's No Launcher doesn't have Tor yet, does it? Yeah, it does. Did they enable it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. In like, so your Lightning Node is just Tor now. I'm pretty sure. It was pretty sweet that my noddle just had like a click. Isn't that great? Just yeah, click like, it. One click. Yep. Boom, you're on tour. Well, exactly. And I was like, like, you should disable that too. Uh, yeah, that was. Down. Yeah, I clicked it reflexively and then I was like, yeah, that's going to take years. <laughs> We're sticking from the start through tour. But but even so, like after it's, it's uh, after you're fully synced and all that and you have the ability to go to tour, I feel like Bitcoin products are making that easier than ever. 
Yeah, I mean, I have three. I have three nodes that are just serving blocks through Tor. So, like, if you do want to do that initial sync through Tor, it will be easier now than mm-hmm. it was six months ago or a year ago. Nice. Yeah, but like back to like the second system oh, right. syndrome problem. Like, sorry, that was a diversion. My bad. No, um, it's not your bad. This is, is all the, the podcast of tangents. Yeah. So, like second, half a knob. The problem with second system syndrome here is. Sorry, the problem with ETH2, let's just call it, let's just give it a name. Yeah, it's second system syndrome, but with the added bit of the minor incentives, since there's proof of stake in, what is it now, Shasper? Are we, Casper. Shasper, sharding. Sharding plus Casper. Congrats. Shasper. Yeah. No. Don't even get me started on sharding again. Um, oh, should we? Let's just shard all the chains. Why don't we just shard everything? Congratulations, you solved one problem. And now you have n minus one times number of shards problems. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Super. All right. Before we jump into that, let's <laughs> stick on the second system part. Second um, system syndrome problem. The thing is, in this case, because there's an economic incentive not to cooperate, you know there's going to be a fork coin. There are going to be miners who say, "Yeah, we're not on board." It remains to be seen how many there are and how that plays out. You're already seeing this. Like we've we've talked about this on RHR for like last few weeks. Bitcoin hit an all time high in hash rate today. Yeah. Over a hundred exahash per second. Ethereum, and I, I think this is a product of pro P prog POW, mm-hmm. programmable POW, and their overall uh roadmap to transition to proof of stake. Like their hash rate is the last I checked forty percent below its all time high, and Bitcoin, even though it's fifty percent below its all time high in price, is at its all time high in hash rate. What's especially concerning to me about that is that it's not as if those GPUs have up and disappeared. No. So there's still you know that's effectively ammunition that's out there. Who knows where this ends? I honestly don't. I think there's a lot of different disincentives all piling up, and a lot of Feelings being piled on top of those malincentives. This is not a, something that I would be anywhere near. You're, I feel like we're sort of inching towards how is Ethereum 2.0 going to turn out? I don't want to know. Is it going to turn out? That's my big question. Because my, one of my favorite threads, one of the threads that I'm most happen? proud of yeah, yeah. is Ethereum. Like in the, A lot of Ethereum proponents would like to think that Ethereum has a, a quasi-Lindy effect right now. But I think it is exhibiting a reverse Lindy effect because you cannot start building a Lindy effect until you have a protocol that is backwards compatible yeah. and upgradable and their Ethereum in particular, their vision to transition to ETH 2.0. You cannot start on your Lindy effect until you have the protocol that's set in stone that will be backward compatible in new versions going forward. So we know for a fact that that does not exist right now. Like we know that Ethereum plans to transition to a whole new chain with a whole new set of protocol rules, with a whole new set of consensus rules that will basically start a Lindy effect. If they stick with that, like and history has shown that they will not stick with their implementations, at least up to this point. And there's just like a bunch of whitewashing and. And uh, this this is great because disingenuous you, definition of terms and in network effects. That's what it is. Yeah. There's disingenuous 
definitions of what their network effects actually are and what they mean for the long term. Why don't we define what network effects are because everyone misuses it. Network effects are the direct or indirect benefits that are acquired by users by, just by joining the same network. And they're not necessarily all good or bad. A great example of a network is traffic, like driving to and from places. A negative network effect is congestion. When too many people are on the roads and the roads are clogged up, that's a network effect. Um, a benefit a benefit might be that people going along a specific road might find that it's more beneficial for each of them to pay a little bit of a toll. I know who, who pays for the roads. Pay for a toll and then uh, have the, each of their individual tolls dedicated to maintaining the upkeep of the road. Network effects in this case, you just nailed it right on the head. They haven't had a time to set in because no one's really gaining a direct or indirect benefit from being on the same application layer when everyone's saying, hey, we need to jump to a new chain because this isn't uh, solving our needs. There's no, there are network effects, there are direct benefits that are requiring to the people who are, say, selling conference tickets and selling thought leadership, but not necessarily people who are actually trying to conduct business on chain. What's the benefit that they're acquiring from all of this? I don't see it. What I do see from the description you just gave was the, and it's nobody's fault. We had the best of intentions. I clean myself because I'm a network engineer. All the people who thought that the migration from IPv4 to IPv6 was going to be smooth and quick and instantaneous, I didn't realize the problems of like having a completely different wire-incompatible protocol. We just thought everyone would just slot in and things would just start working. And we, I've been hearing about IPv6 since 1998. I think we're at 50% adoption. We're still right not there. No. no, no. Because it's the thing about... Uh, network effects like we, that we mentioned earlier is switching costs. The switching costs just aren't high enough to get people to move to IPv6 at the edge. So it's usually ISPs that have run out of IPv4 space. They're like, well, we can't build this with IPv4, so we have right. to go IPv6. They're the ones driving adoption. Um, yeah, because we still have IPv4 access. Like, that's no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like and my router like gives it as an option. Yeah, and there are IPv4, IPv6 gateways all over the network to make sure that there's interoperability between both networks. Who's my question for this is for ETH 2.0 is okay, you launched it. Who's compelled to use it? I guess you can get the exchanges on board since you're on a Skype chat room with them and they'll change the ticker to your new thing and then Well and that the most confusing thing for me right now, I'm generally confused, is like their attempt to bridge the value of ETH 1.0 and the token Ether tokens on ETH 1.0 into ETH 2.0. Yeah, I don't. What in my mind, just from an outside observer and somebody, I'd like to believe I have a better understanding about what ETH is trying to do from their transition to ETH 1.0 to ETH 2.0 than your layman. Though I do not have uh, as good understanding of the transition of ETH 1.0 to ETH 2.0 as somebody who's working on the protocol, but still, before I'm going to invest all my time to understand the intricacies of what happens uh, on the, during the transition from one to the other, like the whole point that a transition exists is like you are giving up. You're giving up on it, right? Is, am I wrong? Up. You fucked up, right? See, that's how does it not feel like that? You know, I think their answer to that would be when we're evolving, this shows our flexibility and how we have the ability to demonstrate value. And this is the benefit of not having a leaderless organization. We're pushing innovation and so on and so forth. But really, yeah, this, this is giving up on the whole decentralized application dream. Well, and it, 
to me, it all comes back to thinking about the man in the coma. Thinking about backwards compatibility. Like, is the man in the coma running an ETH node right now the who has the ETH, woods, the mountain man. who is, <laughs> who is uh, securing their ETH through their own full node, through their, their own devices, but has fallen into a coma in, in the next six months if ETH starts their, Ethereum starts their transition to ETH 2.0, and they eventually like make that bridge and start on ETH 2.0, let's say our man in the coma wakes up from his coma this time next year and like ETH 2.0 is a thing like is his node going to be backward compatible is he going to be able to claim his ether on that chain like even i'm not i'm not positive and even if he is no my question is if eth was supposed to be bitcoin 2.0 and now it has its own 2.0 <laughs> is that bitcoin 3.0 what <laughs> is going on i'm confused galaxybrain.jpg <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. It's confusing. It's yeah. confusing. The beauty of Bitcoin is that it's fucking simple. It's complicated, but it's simple. Yeah. Right? It's like crazy that that's the argument, but it's true. It's it's fucking simple as fuck. We know exactly what it's giving us. It you can run a node, you can be running the most original node, it still syncs to the same exact chain, right? That's pretty crazy. No, it's fucking beautiful. It's not even crazy. It's like, it's crazy and beautiful. It's both. But it's how do these principles get so bastardized in this journey that we found ourselves on? I think it's because are, we. So I think the crux of the argument are Ethereum snake oil salesmen, or are they just misguided? Most of them altruist? are naive. I think most yeah. of them are naive. I think. Okay, it's condescending to, for me to say naive because I know a few smart people who are working on it. So I think there's. I'm gonna try to throw them a lifeline. Um, naive is the lifeline. If, oh they're, shit. if they're not naive, they're fucking snake oil salesmen. Fair. 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 Different. I think there's different perspectives. Like I said, I'm a protocol guy. If you're used to the app layer, I think you think app development first and then consequences later. I think if you're shilling anyone on your token, yeah, you're a fucking snake oil salesman. But if you say you want to build cool things with the EVM because it's like JavaScript, I get it. At some point, in the distant past, I thought sidechains were a good idea. You got to work through it. It's cool. Well, what about federated sidechains? What about Liquid? How I think federated sidechains are great because they own up front what they are. It's like, listen, it's a federation. It's it is a ripple it is. on Bitcoin. Yeah. It, it, you, you have to trust this N of M multisig. Are you right. okay with that at the start? Great. There's no... The, the key is admitting the trade-offs, right? Exactly. And for example, I don't think anything is wrong with ETH 2.0 in theory, in practice. Okay, one guy is backstopping the bills for Infura and holds like 20% of the stake. That's higher than I've gone with, and I've been very radical with it. Are we talking about Mr. Lubin? Yes, we are. And yes, that's the number yeah. that everyone says in private, and I'm the first one who just said it in public. It is what it is. You say that number I think I said 12, and it was like, oh, what, with this radical over here. No, there's... Yo, you say 20% in front of a couple of consensus lawyers, and they start blanching and catching the vapors. <laughs> oh, my stars. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hilarious. But it's... it's impossible to deny like it is fucking out in the open like fucking i'm not you know what i don't give a fuck there's there's the shit people say in telegram rooms and in conferences and there's the shit people say like on twitter where like they gloss over this let's not gloss over it yeah that's the number everyone sort of doesn't deny yeah so what is that i mean honestly if you want to be a jeff bezos of the blockchain go ahead and build aws i ain't gonna hate but like talking about that setup as if it's decentralized come on it's Disingenuous isn't even the word. That's a scam. 
I, I think I have. Hi, Joe. I, I know you. I think I'm drunk enough to give my bar stool consensus story now. Oh, Let's man. hear it. Summer 2017. Before before I even started working for Barstool, Barstool was lucky to have Lewis Roberts, who's not with them anymore. He's our head of sales at the time, and uh, a startup within Consensus, Virtue Poker in particular, which had no idea whether or not it was going to be legal or uh, within the laws of New Jersey, let alone the laws of international law. They were trying, like we went into Consensus's office, and this is when I, I was very skeptical of Ethereum up to this point. I had written my thread about uh, going to the Consensus meetup and seeing how they pitched Ethereum, and I lamented about that already, but I'd never been in the belly of the beast and seen the pitch from an, an ICO company to a, a company that would have offered advertising services for them. Luckily, not even luckily, like the the biggest insight I got from that meeting was I went to Consensus and this company, Virtue Poker. They ran an ICO, raised millions of dollars to create a uh, a poker app on the blockchain. Create was, seals with clubs. It was it was cryptographically proven that it was a fair house, whatever, blah, 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 whatever. I didn't even need to be there. Like my boss Lewis, who I've talked about on this podcast. He's been on the, he's the first two episodes. If you listen to the first two episodes of the podcast, Lewis is with me, but and he's not as into Bitcoin as I am. He's into Bitcoin, but does not understand like the intricacy of, more of, of a it crypto guy. as I do. And I didn't even have to say anything to him. Like we went into consensus. We sat there for an hour, had Virtue Poker pitch him on why they should be allowed to market on Barstool. And I, literally, we got into my car and I was like being silent on purpose, just waiting to see if Lou would make the first word. He's like, was it me or was that just like fucking stupid? Like, is this all a scam? Like he like innately knew that like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Like they don't know speaking particularly to virtue poker. They did not know whether or not like poker was going to be legal in the jurisdictions that they were operating. They didn't know whether or not. And that's actually, this was still back when I was on like my, my ardent, like, what do you think about, Ethereum transition to proof of work to proof of stake. Like that was the one that was my biggest worry at that point. Like I wasn't even worried about like the ICO it was like you're changing your consensus algorithm. Like how are you going to move all these ICO dApps from a proof of work consensus to a proof of stake consensus basically seamlessly without a hitch. And that was like the one question and like the dude building on Ethereum didn't even know about the switch from proof of work to proof of stake. And I was like what the fuck? Luckily I didn't even have to be like, what the fuck? Lou looked at me and was like, this is fucking bullshit. Like, I'm not even going to get into this. But, like, that's how insane it is. And that is consensus. C-O-N-S-E-N-Y-S. The, the VC arm of consensus Ethereum with a y. is pumping these video, these companies, excuse me. And they can't even explain to a layman, like, how it would in any way make sense. Like, I didn't... Thank God. Like, I felt like immense amount of pressure come off my shoulders. The fact that I didn't have to say anything. Lou looked at me. He was like, yeah, that's oh, fucking stupid. I envy you. <laughs> <laughs> Why? The, the venture capital scene in New York, because of Fred Wilson and that damn blog post, uh, just fell in love with the ICO concept for the same reason around the same time. Because of a million reasons, but honestly, because of easy money. There's So none. much money to be made. Dude, uh-huh. it got to the point where there was a... 
it, it got to the point where there was ICO advisory funds. Yo, if we they ICO, weren't even ICO funds. They were ICO advisories, basically made up of lawyers who would advise you on how to launch a quote-unquote clean ICO. Yo, if we, and one of them approached Barstool and tried to make Barstool do it. And luckily, I got into the email chain, but I didn't have to. Like, the... the the conversation got to actually i don't know how much like i should uh i should disclose of this but like long story short an ico advisory fund was in barstool's ear like you should launch an ico and i was like there's no you, uh, we can barely run a word per, per if, press if, site here you should if not be we had an ico advisory fund we wouldn't be doing this podcast like we could have just retired you know we could have this podcast in the middle of this like, podcast life cycle we were recording in uh, the same WeWork of one of the biggest ICO shit funds in the fucking world. What was that? Coinfund.io, dude. Coinfund. Uh, oh, wow. R.I.P. I would walk past that Jeremy fucker and be like, what the fuck? Who are you? Hey, that reminds me. How's Coinless doing? <laughs> they're, they're hitting me up once a week to interview their CEO. Um, not, getting, not getting answers to those emails. <laughs> and if you can't tell by now, Uncle Marty's very drunk and... And disclosing some, we, we, we do not, we do not allow shit corners onto the podcast. It's no, a very God, important no. rule that we 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 make here at TFTC. No, this is and this is something. It's not worth it in the long run. Yeah. It is ephemeral. Like the the better conversations are here, speaking with you, somebody who's worked on protocols for fucking decades Yeesh. and actually understands the problem. Where you could, oh yeah, you could speak to some ICO shit coiner who's launching some quote unquote innovational. The business plan, but it's like, eh, it's ephemeral. This gets to, you, we mentioned the blockchain consulting thing I did in 2017. This Now I can actually lay it out on the line. I didn't accept a single dollar of money. I think I lost $5,000 or so on the venture. Basically, it was an excuse to go out with people and grab coffee and talk about what they were working on. What I was really trying to figure out, like, are is everyone else insane? Because if everyone else is insane, I'm going to go short. <laughs> what did you find? Like, what were the conversations you were having? No one believes this shit one-to-one. There was no... People pump their bags like you wouldn't believe on Twitter and at meetups, but one-to-one, they always have the same cynicism. They're always... The big tell is they're talking about how they're going to cash out in dollars. Um, there's never any concern about adoption or how you're going to catch your first 100 users. If you start to have that conversation, people start getting nervous and uh, touchy. Eventually, around May 2018, I saw all I needed to see, and it was like, all right, well... Definitely, there hasn't. I mean, you have to understand. I'm gonna dox myself even further. Fred Wilson actually funded a couple of co- companies that I worked at back in like the 2007-2008 era. He can probably figure them out if he's listening. Hey, Fred. Um, I hope he Fred's listens. a big he, Fred's a big freak. He's a big Fred episode. He's a big uh, name in the New York venture capital community. You, if he says something is the next big thing, then you listen. You know, uh, and going against what. I, I've worked a lot of startups, which is how I know so many different VCs. You know, you, they fund your last company, you work at the next one, you build another cool thing. Hakuna Matata, the cycle repeats, paint with all the colors of the wind and all that. Uh, and you just mixed two Disney <laughs> movies there, very flawlessly. And it was just the strangest thing, all of them just abandoning their collective knowledge that they had for years and just chasing the easy money. There were so many different things about the ICM mania that should have set off red flags for anyone with a traditional investing background. Like, why the rush to liquidity? Why aren't we focusing on the user experience? Who are the early adopters, actually? Like, no, show me your actual early adopters. Meet them in person. Talk through what they're getting out of the product. 
all that due diligence was just put behind in the desperate rush to be part of the next big thing. Well, that's what blows my mind coming from a traditional finance background and particularly fund of funds. So I, I worked for a company and we had what's called 40 act fund of funds and 40 act fund of funds, is basically a mutual fund, but you're indexing other funds into a quasi mutual fund. But the amount of due diligence that we had to do on the funds that were in our index was absurd to the point where I was like, ah, oh, I get why like people are mad at regulations. But now looking back in the lack of due diligence that was exhibited between 2015 and 2019 in ICOs in particular, it's like, oh, I understand why this, these due diligence checks are in place. Like you need to make sure like due diligence to the point, like if you're working in a tr- traditional fund, the due diligence is the point where you have to physically show up to somebody's office and prove that the server is there and yeah. is running the data that it's running. And that does not exist in this world at all. And that's one thing I want to make clear to you freaks out there who may be listening to this and uh, financially illiterate or uh, not illiterate, but uh, unaware of the the due diligence that goes on in the fund space. Like it is thorough. Like there are regulations for re- like not calling for regulations, but to play fair in the real world, you have to check off a bunch of boxes and the the boxes that either didn't exist or were never checked off were egregious in the ICO boom. You status motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like, that's a weird thing. It like makes me like, that is one thing where it's like, all right, the state here, maybe it does have a point. Like, Okay, so I'm not a status motherfucker, you fucker. <laughs> but let's throw him in. Let's throw him in the throw him in the swamp. Um, belongs. But yeah, it's the same sort of thing. If the thing, what we're talking about here, and again, it's regulatory arbitrage. These people were basically trying to, either intentionally or unintentionally, create a level of distance between them and the regulators, and sort of. Everyone, even in 2017, was talking about, like, oh, the SEC is going to be coming after you, the SEC is coming after you, the SEC is... Well, now the SEC is here. In the interim between the mania and now, no one's actually put any effort into, like, trying to make sure that the regulators wouldn't be able to catch them, except the people who, like, exit scammed and moved to Puerto Rico. Those dudes are free and clear. Shout out, Vern. (laughs) Defendcrypto.org. Yeah, exactly. It's Um, ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and I have... If you're going to go that route, personally, do what you like. Take your chances. You're the one who suffers the consequences. Who am I to judge? It's the disingenuous attempt to be like half a scammer. You can't be half a scammer. Just be a scammer. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to do it, just be a scammer. I will respect the fucking hustle if you do. Catch Me If You Can is one of my favorite movies, okay? Frank Abingdale. I yeah. saw he's still giving out uh, advice on CNBC. Like CNBC tweeted about Frank Abingdale a couple weeks ago. Right? Ridiculous. Love that shit. But don't tell me, like, you're decentralized and open and free and then, you know, set up backdoor deals with, like, the Saudi Arabia Sovereign Wealth Fund. The way, the way I look at it is, like, I'm fine with free market. I, like, I love free markets. I think all of it should be free. And I think the result of free markets is that you will have rectification, right? Like, we go back to this. It's like you will get wrecked. The Rectification's a new word. Like, I'm like, still trying like, to sounds like, painful. Like people yeah. will get wrecked, and and it sucks. Like it really sucks for them, but like they will get wrecked, and they will learn from it. You know, and and then we proceed, and and that's the ultimate result of a, a pure free market. And I'm fine with that because that is what I want, and I think it's a net benefit for for the world. Um, but that, like that sucks for the individuals, and that's why I shout from the rooftops 
what I feel because I want those individuals to possibly not have to deal with reeducation. But I understand that in a free market, that is exactly what's going to happen. You will have scams. You will have bullshit that has that they do not disclose the trade-offs, which is actually the definition of a scam. But that that that's what's going to happen, and you just you just deal with it. And hope, hopefully, the majority of people, you know, skate by and don't have to. Fingers crossed, man. Can we motion to? I'm maybe pushing my luck here. Can we start calling it rectified? Rectified? I like I rectified. like rectified. I think we can yeah. uh this is I think this is the first time the vernacular is uh motion passes. Yeah, motion passes. It's rectified. Motion passes. I've we been, we've uh, achieved consensus. Oh, rectified well, I, it is. I'm not sure if I agree with this governance system. I might have to fork <laughs> off. But All right. I, I, I'm I'm fine So let's someone call Dan Larimer. Let's let's turn to more optimistic Bitcoin focused okay. conversation like Again, going back to what I was trying to harp on, like, where are we now? Are we robust enough? Is the possibility of creating the true open financial system that we envision uh, coming into fruition? Doesn't that exist right now? What What are the the areas that worry you that we need to focus on? Maybe that we aren't focusing on as much um, as a gray beard. As a gray beard. <laughs> The one thing I appreciate is my complete inability to see the future, so I can tell you what the past feels like. There was, let's see, I think in 1996, 97? That has to be the timing. I started downloading MP3s from different random FTP sites all over the web. This is before BitTorrent even became a big thing. And ripping my own MP3 CDs from like going to a local record store and getting the software to encode wave files into mp3 format this is way before uh napster yeah way way before and at that time nobody took mp3 seriously and the idea that we were going to redefine how music was distributed or anything like that was just not on anyone's radar and about 2000 2001 things just start to flip my first two mp3 players were in order literally i want to get the name of it right the, um, it was a no-name Taiwanese outfit, the Jukebox RJ100. It was basically a three-and-a-half-inch laptop hard drive with, like, 12 AA batteries and a logic board all taped together and just barely fit in your pocket, 20 gigs of MP3s. <laughs> and uh, I forget the other the name brand. These were all, like, things you had to look up on the equivalent of, like, Alibaba, you know? Like, they weren't being sold in stores or anything. But it was a... CD player that played CDs that had MP3 data on them that could hold like an hour and 15 minutes worth of lithium battery charge. Because the usual CD player didn't play MP3 data. Exactly. So somebody basically hacked the DAC board to like decode MP3s, but nobody had figured out like, oh wait, this means the CPU is doing 100 times more work than it was doing before, so we're going to burn out batteries in an hour. Two things. One, these were amazing, life-changing technologies for me. They gave me, like, hope in a way that you cannot... Like, I was the coolest kid in school when I had my 20-gig MP3 player. Are you kidding me? What music were you downloading? Uh, skinny Puppy. A lot of old punk and industrial. Yeah. That was, Yo, Marty had a Zune, right? Marty, were you a Zune not, guy? Oh, wow. <laughs> you seemed like a Zune guy. A Zune? No, I was not. That's never a Zune guy. I was a, I was a Walkman... Never, I got the, I got the. Did you ever have the mini discs, the Sony mini discs? Do you remember the mini discs? No. Oh yeah, I had mini discs. I had a, I had a, I had a, I had a, I had a CD binder. 
I went from a CD binder to an, an iPod. Uh, I remember. An, uh, do you remember I in the car? I can't even remember. It's not an iPhone anymore. What was it? I, um, iPod. 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 The, Holy yeah. shit. Oh, I forgot what an iPod. In the car, you iPods? used to have the, the CD binder where you were like, okay, yeah, let man. me pull out what I, what CD I was going to play. Yeah. Now my CD player in my car literally acts as a mount for my phone. Like I just stick the fucking silicone into the nice. to the hole <laughs> the, of the CD mount to hold my phone. Yeah, I went straight from uh, binders of CDs to the iPod. Wow. Or and Napster and Kazam and LimeWire in between. Kazam. But, yeah. I remember Kazam and Napster and LimeWire. So we had to go from those initial devices, that first initial glimpse of what it meant to be using MP3s instead of like the CDs that you got from Sam Goody or vinyl records even oh yeah you remember record stores having to be a thing because you need to stockpile H&M, music and, does yeah. they exist anymore? one of my H&M, favorite movies ever H&M. Airhead. Records. airheads is one of my favorite movies ever a movie about a oh nice That's record a good one. store mine is one of mine is empire records just because i was empire young enough records. yeah yeah there aren't Such big record stores one. like that anymore there's no need for them when i think of uh this last summer for me in bitcoin i set up my square card and now i have deposits and withdrawals of bitcoin working i have my coin kite cold card i have my noddle sponsor i think of that hard drive mp3 player like it's clunky and it's weird and it's definitely a technology in transition but also in a very real way there's a bitcoin balance that i can drop onto my debit card and turn into fiat when i need to it's it's the definition of a technology in transition, it's awkward and clunky, but also it totally works. It gets the thing done that I need done. What I would really like to do is just have Square move the fiat part away entirely and have the endpoints that I'm sending money to just have Bitcoin addresses, but it's not on them to do that. They're, there's an entire ecosystem that needs to grow. It's going to take a decade or two for that to happen, but we're at the start of it, I think. No, and that's exactly one of the points that I like to harp on is everybody wants everything out of the box right now. Like Bitcoin needs to be the perfect payments network, the perfect money, the perfect store of value, the perfect unit of account out of the box. And how do people not realize that this is going to take time? Like You can't have everything. If you want to wait for that to happen, you can. But by that time, number will have finished going up. <laughs> if you want all the value all at once, fine. But you're going to have to sacrifice the price discovery. I like that. Number has gone up. Yeah. Number been going up. <laughs> Will it ever stop going up? No, Bitcoin's going to pump forever. Oh, I, I did admit this to Eric. Don't tell Eric Voss. I did admit this to Eric while we were interviewing him, but, but I do believe that the number goes up forever. Because even though it goes up on a less slope, like the slope will decrease, it will just continue. Like if you have a deflationary currency and it becomes a currency of the world, like it's going to go up forever, like by design. No, it's, I believe that I. It scares the hell out of me that I kind of believe that, but in broad strokes, I do. It makes sense, right? It yeah, does, I'm not crazy. But, but here's what worries me: it's. I love parabolic, uh, Trav, but it's not going to be a smooth, straight parabola all the oh, time. No, no, it's gonna it be, will not be a smooth. Like it's not going to be smooth at all. Like from here to one million. 10 million, 100 million. I don't know where it ends, but I know dirty, my hair is going to be gray by the end of it. It's going to be dirty. And I'm just going to recycle the same fucking tweets over and over again. <laughs> You've been warned. It's just going to happen. <laughs> we go to 100K. We drop down to 25K. There's going to be the same exact tweets I sent to you at $3,000. Like that is it's going to be the same tweets. And I'm going to recycle them. And it's going to be fucking beautiful. <laughs> it's what's going to happen. Right? We all know. I don't disagree. Yeah. 
If Bitcoin fails, we're fucked. That's how I feel. Well, yeah. I don't even think we're fucked. I we think are we fucked. Were, no, I don't think so. But because I think it's very hard to deny that this is not an enticing technology at the least, and if not, a very hopeful and uh, technology filled with potential at the very most, right? Like, no, no, I mean, can I you agree. knock people for trying to make the world better? Like, I agree, but are we but, honestly making the world better? I guess that's the question. We, we are to making do, the world better. Like, do you think we're? This is on Like, is this a completely greedy play by us, or no. focus on making your world better? Because once you start trying to make other people's worlds better, then that way lies madness. You're going to start controlling them and trying to get them yeah. to dance to your tune. Start make going to like Hitler things. Make sure that you're taken care of, and make sure that you're not actively hurting anyone else, and then the rest will just sort of sort itself out. Well, is that's what I but, believe. But that is said. also the beauty of Bitcoin, in my mind. Is like again, like going back to our conversation of exit and voice the beginning of the conversation like you do not have to participate in this if you don't want to but you yeah. should this is this is the thing that i think a lot of no coiners don't get they think their opinion is important or necessary or part of the conversation no we exited you we've left you can write about us all you want we're outside of you are we going to win in the long run do you think are you hopeful uh, uh, it's going to be the network that everyone wants to be a part of so sure that's it's ironic, like I, I was mentioning earlier, internet skeptics. How do you think internet skeptics communicate? Do they not use email? <laughs> Carrier pigeons. Yeah, owls. they're still faxing. They're exactly. still faxing it's like, to each it's other. It's like a Harry Potter thing. It's like owls. They use owls. Yeah. I was down with owls, by the way. I would have been an owl maximalist if that was real. <laughs> like, if I could transfer value and messages through owls... I would probably Dude, do it. Dude, we're in Brooklyn, the king of pigeon messages. I know, but if I had owls, like if I could actually like send an owl out my window, I'm just saying, I like not realistic. Owls aren't very good at sending messages or value. Until that to World War II generals. Yeah. Because an owl is pigeons. I'm but. pretty sure they didn't do that. I got to ask. Yes, they did. Owls? I, no, they use pigeons. Are we three drink mat? Six drink mat. Where uh, are we? We're we're, we're three, three quarters, quarters down the knob creek. Wow. You know, and do we have a paddle? We have a paddle. We're paddling. It's like the the current's questionable. You know, we're like dealing <laughs> with it. We're in the knob creek. And this has been my favorite free flowing TFTC conversation I've had in a while. I think this is the longest one that's ever existed. Oh we're God. At two hours. We're and five minutes, minutes away. We're, well, we have to continue. We have to break the We're record. Five minutes away from breaking the well, all-time my, high. My deepest apologies to everyone who has had to hear my nasal voice for the past two oh, hours and change. Stop. Shut <laughs> up. Dude, fuck you, man. This uh, is no. This is episode 100 of TFTC. We're going to yes. blow it out. We're going we're to go for another hour. It's fuck. a centennial. It's a centennial. We oh. have 75 hours on Marty's SD card, supposedly. <laughs> I don't know how your, your SD card might run out before this. Yeah, I mean, we could do we go 36, you know? Yeah, we'll do, we'll do a day and a half. We'll do a day and a half podcast, but... I'm glad I, I explicitly asked for 100 because it was coming up. It was like, hey... Dude, we've been trying to get you since before I met you and before I met Marty. Yeah. So, we've been trying to get you since... Oh, oh you can go, go back ever. in the DM archives. I think I DM'd you like two years ago. I was like, let's do this. Yeah, I've been reticent about it. I don't know why. I guess there's... I don't know. The old Bitcoin habits die hard. It's not a good idea to be sharing real names, right? But then again, everyone knows each other in real life, so, eh. That's how I felt. He seduced me for a while. I don't want to get too cheesy here, but 
you've been very formative, your ideas at least, on Twitter. That's the crazy thing about Twitter is like this one small medium of messages uh, imbued to the world and 280 characters or less over mm-hmm. time since the change. But I've learned so much from you on Twitter and oh, you've been well, the the impetus for a lot of uh, subjects that have been written in Marty's Bent uh, in particular. I'm and I, I, again, I just... What a big theme of this podcast over the last two years has been I do not think people think long term enough. I think people yeah. are caught into their current condition and are caught into the currents of their modern time and just get caught up in bullshit and are not able to step back and look at the bigger context of things. And that is why I have been a big fan of yours and trying to get you on this podcast for so long is because I think you have a very unique ability to take not just a step back, but a fucking thousand foot step (laughs) back and to look at the world and how we're interacting with it now and comparing it to other times in history. And it is crazy. I mean, we've been warned. History does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And what you bring to light is that we are part of that rhyming history. I'm glad I'm at least useful for that. (laughs) One of the hardest things that it's... Uh, that I've had to come to terms with in uh, understanding Bitcoin is that a lot of people with my traditional skill set are really good for telling stories. You don't want a guy like me, like, good Lord, God forbid, writing his own blockchain software. Can you imagine what that would look like? In a different world, I'm the guy behind, like, Hedera Hashgraph. <laughs> if you ICO'd, I might buy the I would I would have taken yeah. you for the Avalanche guy. <laughs> oh, man. I should have fucking ICO'd. I would have totally bought Ben the Kingsley coin. I would have totally bought Well, the no, let's get into it. Like... <laughs> You, <laughs> you touched on it earlier, like Classic you were Marty. quote unquote blockchain advising, but you're basically yeah advising I'd, the brain drain and tell people they shouldn't be doing that. Like, what is you could have made a lot of money? Well, so I there's two things that you want the old graybeard stuff. Here's a couple of things you can make or lose a fortune in an instant. You can only lose your reputation. You can never get it back. Uh, all of the people who went in for scams during the dot-com bubble, they're the people who... I know plenty of people who made poor decisions. I'm not going to get into them because I don't want to dox anyone. But Classic. There's two sorts of people. There's people who like immediately had to fess up and say, oh, shit, I fucked up with that last call, that last job, that last play, that last thing. And they got to be part of the mobile revolution in the app store and got welcomed back into the cool kids club. And then there's the people who were like, nope, Adobe Flash was a great decision. And those guys are off in the Cayman Islands right now, banging their trophy wives. God bless them, but we don't hang out with them anymore. You only get a one chance, you know? No, that's like, what life do you want to live? Yeah. At the end right? of the day, the money is not going to be, it's, it's not going to hold you close at night. It's not going to come to your birthday party. It's not going to respect you. Wait, 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 wait. Just for devil's advocate. <laughs> I completely intend to get fucking rich as fuck off of Bitcoin. Fair. Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, Disclosure. So Disclosure. Disclosure. With that being said, right, where where are our blind spots? Like are we wrong? How could we be wrong? We could we could be wrong, right? About Bitcoin? Absolutely we could be wrong. Um, Huh. Okay. You want to steal me on our yeah, let's steal, man. Yeah, let's, let's steal, man. How, how, how is Bitcoin wrong? Huh. He's thinking. 
He's, he's got his thing. That's the thing. All I can think of are like no corner arguments that I've debunked like a million times already <laughs> on Twitter. Like, oh, too much electricity. Go fuck yourself. Um, you need a central authority to hmm. pick the interest rate. I think we could be wrong. Like 10x later, we sell and then it crashes or something. Hmm. Like, I think we have a 10x in us regardless if we're wrong. What is, is being wrong? Though? What is being wrong? That is the question we're trying being to Being wrong at. is like Bitcoin doesn't become the global money. Something else does, I think. What would that something else be, though? Would it be the U.S. dollar? I think it would be like a corporation I think that's very important. It would important. be like a Libra-style bullshit. Well, well, shit. If that's the case and Libra does succeed over Bitcoin. No, not Libra. It would be like Libra-style. Yeah, it wouldn't well, be Libra, Libra style, Something Libra-style. Even if that is the case where that succeeds over Bitcoin, I would not have felt bad uh, championing Bitcoin because I believe we would have lost in the long run if a Libra-style coin becomes the status quo, I think. Oh, we've definitely lost in that situation. Yes, but I, I think... It was but we c- would have still made bank. Yes, but it... In whatever the currency it w- is. Could have still made bank, but it would not have been like a, a scammer-esque like bank make... Uh, where I do truly believe that at least I know I'll speak for myself like I know that I think Bitcoin is one of our only shots at achieving a free sovereign money in the digital age Mm -hmm. and a Libra coin is not that but that's what we're losing out to in the long run yeah it sucks but it doesn't denigrate what the ethos and the, the goals that Bitcoin are striving for Oh, you guys looking at me for to chime in now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think, like, yeah, I agree that, you know, but I actually disagree. I think we would have failed in that situation. I, 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 I no, want, we definitely would have failed, but, like, our intentions would still be pure. My goal is for Bitcoin to be the global money. That is my goal. And I think I can help educate and meme that into existence, and I will do that. Um if I get rich and people who buy Bitcoin lose a ton of money, like I have failed. That's, that's how I, that's how I would feel. Um, I, I promise to you guys that, that I will absolutely tweet about it. If I ever fucking sold my Bitcoin, which is never going to fucking happen. (laughs) Um, but I would tweet about it if it happened and I would, I would fucking talk about it on the pod. But I, yeah, I, 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 I think that we all get rich together. That's my plan. We all get rich together. But I do want to get rich. And I will never fucking pull off of that pedestal of, of wanting to get rich. Because I think that is important. I think, I think the key motivation to investing in Bitcoin is that the schmuck next door who's been an asshole to you, who, who's completely enamored with the fiat system, is going to get fucked you know, and, and it's the human greed that brings you into it and wants you to, to do better than that dude. And that's why you get into Bitcoin in the first place, as well as all the independence and everything else. But it, it, it comes at its core. It comes from you wanting to do better than your neighbor. Right. And that, I think that's humanity. Like that's how human humans work is that we want to do better than our neighbor. Oh, you want me to chime in? How do you feel about that? I have feelings. Um, 
Hmm. I don't disagree. I think the incentives are important. I think anyone who says that they're not interested in how... I'm in it for the tech. Yeah, exactly. Sure you are. Like everyone else. Everyone's had, everyone's had a boating accident too. You know, as we talk about it, I find it hard to think about failure scenarios. What worries me is the idea of catastrophic success. Uh, I think the price is almost a foregone conclusion. It's going to be some number that I can't even wrap my head around just because we're at 10,000 right now. That is insane. And, but right now, it's just zero. It's yeah. just normal. Yeah. You know, it's just like, like that's what it, someone asked me the other day, like, what do you think the price will be in five years? So I was like, I can't fathom that price because I thought $10,000 was moon math. Right. When I first got in, I was like, that was the big meme math. in like 2015, 2014. It was like, we're going to get 10,000. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like $10,000 is like, okay, let me multiply 10,000 times how many Bitcoin I own. Oh my God. Okay. I'm good. <laughs> you know, and now we're at 10,000. I'm just like, uh, Hoddle Knot's going to say we're never going to go under 10,000 again. It's just going to be like the normal. It's just, you know, where we are at. So let me flip the question around. Let's say it's 10, 15 years from now. 2035, 2034. Yeah. Holy sure. shit. What's going on? The price is, let's, I don't know, 1 million, 10 million, some insane number, let's say. We're, we're at, te- we're at a, a million dollars. It would be one cent per sat. Okay. So we've, we've hit sat cent parity. So let's say we're there and no one's happy. Half of us think we failed. Why? Like work backwards from that scenario. Don't well, try the to... block size is too small, probably. <laughs> no, I want to be the block size too small is that it's, it's hard to move Bitcoin. And yes, you may have. The dust limit's too high. Yes. That is interesting to me. The Okay. Let me try to articulate this failure scenario. Do you guys know what PIK notes are? Payment in kind? No. Okay. You don't really need to. I'm. Imagine instead of trading UTXOs, you started trading obligations for UTXOs. So the UTXOs themselves don't move, but the obligations, essentially we recreate fiat. To rise Sounds down. risky. Yeah. I know where you're going. I think I know where you're going. I'll let yeah. you continue. So that's my concern, that we somehow succeed in a way where everyone is happy because number go up and number went up lots. Number but, keeps going up. Yeah, but we, in a million different insidious ways, introduce centralized control and gatekeepers in ways that are just subtle enough that there isn't the equivalent of like a UASF movement where everyone throws on hats and goes to war, but enough to like compromise what we have now. That is something that concerns me. I don't know how that would work because I never would have imagined anything about Segway2x. I never would have imagined the backdoor agreements. I never would have imagined the hats. I never would have imagined BIP uh, 148. Shatland Fry coming out of nowhere being like, we're going to fucking do this, motherfuckers. Oh, man. I do remember that, like, August 2nd uh, of that year, like, the day after the BCH before you was like, fuck it, bitches ain't shit, we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, that does wear me, too, but it also, when you, like, think about the game theory of Bitcoin, too, like, when it gets to that point, who are the rationally... Who are the economical actors at that point, and are they rational? That's the question you have to ask. And are they willing to? What's what's the right phrasing for this? Like, it all like 
Bitcoin at the end of the day all comes down to economic rationality. You are mining because you are going to make a return on your capital that you invest in the mining infrastructure. You are buying Bitcoin because you believe that a network effect is going to grow behind it after you buy it and it's going to increase your purchasing power over time. And then when we get into this this post-honeymoon scenario, which we're pontificating about as a future scenario that we don't exist in yet, like you just have to think like up to this point, at least in my mind, uh, economic rationality has won out. And I'd like to think that the, the system is such that it will continue to win out in the long run. Whether that forces people to consolidate UTXOs and do dust holidays, whatever it may be, I just think... Dust holidays are never going to happen. They're never going to happen, but... Because that's not economically rational. It's not economically rational. Right? But I do think the economics will work out to where... uh, You have to assume it. You have to assume economic rationality. You have to assume that people will be greedy with their own stack, right? Yes, exactly. I hope that's true, and I think that's true. The majority. You yeah. have to assume that the majority are greedy with well, their stack. Well, am I, am I right in assuming that it's worked up to this point? Do you think people have been economically rational up to this point? I think so, but I think incentives can only serve to incentivize behavior. Uh, it's not going to be... We don't get to all sit back on our laurels and say, oh, the incentives will work themselves out. We have to appreciate the oh, incentives and understand. And, I'm sorry. No. Uh, and actually Apologize. be an active part of defending Bitcoin. Like, if you remember the UASF, we could have all just sat back and said, oh, the incentives actually, you know, they dictate that they tell us that this is all going to work out for the best. But that doesn't mean you don't have to run your own full node and you don't have to be on Twitter yelling at Jeff Garzik for his off by one error and you just have to, like, sit back and let someone else <laughs> do the work. Jeff who? Who's that dude? Sorry. Uh, he's the guy behind the <laughs> metronome. That ICO guy, what was it? Fuck that dude. You, United Bitcoin. How do oh you? Oh my god. How do Let's you throw- take all of Satoshi's coins and then we're gonna KYC you. Wow. And this is the future of Bitcoin. That's a great example of when I said the people who were part of scams just fucked up the Cayman Islands or and are uh, off spending their money from the dot com days. Nah, days. Jeff fucked it up. He's yeah. fucking poor, man. Well, uh, Uncle Marty over here is more of uh, a, cons- oh. a conspiracy. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Apo- not apologist, but uh, <laughs> not apologist. What's the word I'm looking for? A enthusiast? An- not enthusiast either. <laughs> Conspiracy I'm, enthusiast uh, is a great. I'm sympathetic term. to some of their views, and you're a sympathizer. Like people like Jeff Garzik and Mike Hearn. Like looking back, like Mike Hearn was a spook. Those guys were obviously spooks, right? Like, well, Mike Hearn definitely Garzik too. Garzik. Like he went to KYC everybody and move everybody Fuck, to Metronome. Man. Like steal Satoshi's That's another friends. freaks. If you're listening out there, factor this into your threat models. There are spooks, government actors, people that are trying to disrupt Bitcoin. Is that uh, conspiracy? You know what? No, I want if. If I were coming at this ex nihilo, I would have said yes, but we've seen too many issues in the past with developers attaching themselves to open source projects and then suddenly introducing bugs that just miraculously break encryption. That's happened in yeah. Debian, that's happening in Apple's SSL implementation. It's a common tactic. You get like a researcher and academic. Such a good tactic. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I just wanted to hear you say it. Do I want to hear it? Do I think you. those guys are doing it? I have no proof. Do I think it's rare? No, not at all. Well, I'm very happy that Garzik and Hearn have been thrown out of the system. Hey, man, there's always Ethereum. 
Do you remember yeah. Hearn's uh, R3 tell-all, New York Times, Bitcoin's dead, R3's the future, I'm gone? I love the chutzpah of like universally, unilaterally declaring like I've that the Bitcoin experiment has failed. Like it's failed. Satoshi, yeah. is that you? Yeah. <laughs> At like three hundred dollars. Yeah, it's over. It's done. Wait. Uh, People can't... wonder why we are like aggressive. You know, like that's what happens. Like you attack us, we get well, we get aggressive. That's like uh, I don't want to get too far into. Number one, the whole concept of conspiracy has been bastardized. Like conspiracy is the the meeting of minds to conspire against another mind. Like well, go my... back to Cato, go back to the Catiline there excuse me, the Catiline conspiracy, which is the literally the prototype prototypical example of rhetoric in the world. It's about a conspiracy against Catiline or against Cicero. Catiline conspired against Cicero to kill him and like if you like if you translate that Latin it was a oration by was it Catalan or Cicero who got conspired it was Cicero who got uh, conspired against by Catalan but the Catalan conspiracy oration is literally one of the the cornerstones of logic like in in the uh, academic world like conspiracy is a real thing like people have this connotation of conspiracy theories like oh you're a loon if you believe in a conspiracy theory what a conspiracy theory is at the end of the day is that you had one or more persons conspiring against one or more entities on the other side so my my favorite conspiracy theory is that Alex Jones is a government agent designed to make all conspiracy theorists <laughs> look crazy. And I think that is the ultimate conspiracy theory. I and know. I think it's true. I, I, I actually wholeheartedly believe that one. Because I, I, it, basically, when Americans hear conspiracy theory now, they think Alex Jones. They right? shut off. Right? They shut off. And, and he has fucking horrible arguments. And he has he, he he operates from a horrible basis to begin with, and it it disingenuizes all of us. I don't even know if that's a word, but it makes us all look like we're fucking crazy. And so that's my favorite conspiracy. Well, yeah, it's back to like Orwellian naming and shit like that. Like just the fact conspiracy theory, when you break down the etymology of the words, in that there's nothing nefarious about it. Like a conspiracy, again. Is two people conspiring against another party, whether it be one or multiple people. And this is a fact. This is just like the way the English, this is the way the words work. This is how they work. <laughs> and like to think that there aren't people, like we are conspiring. We conspire to give information no, to people. There's no conspiracy. There's no conspiracy. No. Oh, I mean, shit. I thought we were here to manipulate the spot price of Bitcoin. Am I at the wrong podcast? Oh, yeah, Bitcoin, good. Number go up. <laughs> we're, uh, we're trying to push it to 11K right now. Yeah. What, uh, I heard China just accepted Bitcoin as a global currency. I literally, we had a, I don't know, <laughs> did you listen to our live episode in San Francisco? Yes, I did. I, I'm familiar with Six yeah. Drink Matt. So I literally told everyone in the beginning of the episode, I was like, market by Bitcoin, so the price is higher when we, when we, <laughs> quote, when we quote the price. And that was like at the local top. We were booking it like 13K and then it just, it just, like, it just pummeled on everybody. I All felt right. that a little bit about that. This is officially the longest episode of Tales from a Crypt ever. 
We've hit three hours. I don't wow. think do do any of our rival podcasts ever hit three hours. Joe Rogan said three hours a couple times. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'd At like least, to. Yeah, I agree. He is a rival podcast. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Knob Creek. Without them, I don't think we'd have made it all we're three hours. Do, we're not done yet. We're not. Oh done wow! Yet. Can, can we get a shout out? Can Can the freaks who are listening up until this point? Congratulations, by the way, for listening three hours. Can you like reach out to Knob Creek and be like, they drink a lot of whiskey. You should sponsor them. And I don't know, like Channel Bitstein. Like, there's some kind of connection between whiskey and Bitcoin that we can hit here. Um, Both very low time preference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What Marty said, just just do something like that. As long as anyone doesn't find out that my real name is Tur Demester, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> keep quiet on that, guys. Yeah, but I hope you keep that in. How can we classic Tur? How can we how can we end this on a good note? Arbed out. What are what are you thinking? Like right now, what is the the overarching landscape of the space? And the space. Okay. Uh, it's it's 2019 now, and right it's now... It's almost 2020. Yeah, almost 2020. We're just now at the point where people are interested in the space, but starting to lose interest in shit coins. Like, I can have conversations and say, I'm Bitcoin only, and have people take me seriously. There was, up until 2016, nobody wanted to talk about it at all, and then they didn't want to talk about it because they wanted to talk about their shit coins like Matt just uh, was saying earlier. And now we're at the point where we can say, okay, Bitcoin only, you had your ICO fund, this is what we want to talk about. What excites me for the future? Schnorr and Taproot. And you know, one of the things that can, you know what, since we have time, why don't I feel a little bit here? I'm really, an- do it. I'm really annoyed how much hate Lightning gets, even if you don't get so much hate. What even, the fuck, man? Even if you hate lightning and you don't believe in lightning and you think lightning's going to fail, you should thank your lucky stars that you are not competing with the likes of me for space on the next available block and instead I'm on the lightning network. You have to understand that that's how it benefits you. If Even if you're not using it, you would have been competing with people for fees who are using it now. Get that through your heads. It's fucking God. optional. Right. It's optional. That's you, the beauty. The whole beauty of it is that it's fucking optional. So that's my first rant. The second rant is because people were, have tied together SegWit and Scaling and Lightning all together in one, they've missed out on one of the cool benefits that I think SegWit has provided from day one that no one's really focused on, which is script versioning, right. which is freaking amazing. So I'm really looking forward to the combination of Taproot and script versioning being available in mainnet. That might take a couple of years to get live. There's, I think Peter has a BIP that's currently in the request for common phase that he... So- pushed a few months ago does script versioning have to do with back 32 in particular because there's what 16 versions of back 32 that we can go through or 17 yeah i don't know that they're strictly related but their uh script versioning is related to segwit segwit okay. v0 is the current version of script and the idea is you can have multiple different script versions yes and the BEC32 address structure allows for 17 iterations of the script versions, but even within one script version, you have something like 256 versions as well. believe that's true. I haven't looked at the BIP in a couple of months, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like 256 right. to the 17th power in the amount of script versions that oh. can fit. But that's something that... It's crazy. It's like Bitcoin's evolving, and we're, we're having to adapt to these these new realities, but... 
we're finding that they're they're making Bitcoin more useful at the end yeah. of the day, right? And it's, I think we haven't even begun to see what Bitcoin is capable of until those capabilities are in the field, until we have uh, script versioning in the hands of actual developers live on mainnet. I'm really excited to see what people build on top of that. So when Matt and I are gray beards, do you think we're going to look back on Bitcoin and be like, wow, this looks nothing like it did? Dude, I'm already a gray beard. I'm too young, too young. <laughs> oh, man, it happens. Ugh. Bitcoin will do that to you. Yeah. Okay. I wrestle with two things. On the one hand, I, this might have been the most important project, the internet I'm talking about right now, not Bitcoin. The internet might have been the most important global project that mankind has collectively built, at least in my lifetime. But also, it is easily the world's most efficient, most demanding, most gigantic mechanism for distributing hardcore pornography. And Hardcore pornography is good, though. Oh, we're at that point in the podcast. It's okay. It is good. It's a net positive in the world. It's I bad think for it, your it mind. Lets, it lets young men who have no way to get out their rage or whatever get it out on hard they're not i'm no one to judge so i'm not gonna uh, we're not a porn podcast <laughs> but just keep in mind that you might end up dedicating a quarter century of life to what is simultaneously the greatest achievement ever and also a massive jerk off machine and 99 percent of people might prefer the jerk off option than the uh global enlightenment option is it worth it for the global enlightenment global enlightenment option in the long run sorry is it worth it to stick yes, through absolutely. it? Yes, if, absolutely. If a thousand people are using the internet for porn and one person is reading up on uh, information that they otherwise wouldn't have access to because of lack of ability to get to a library or lack of ability to retrieve that information from some state sensor archive or whatever, if we've given one person a benefit and a thousand people are touching themselves, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to hang out with those thousand other people. That's yeah, the one you have to be able to have... You need a censorship-resistant digital currency to pay your <laughs> VR prostitute. Like, how are you supposed to pay your virtual reality prostitute if you don't have oh, a censorship-resistant digital currency? Like, that he's, is he's the not greatest wrong. use case of Bitcoin. You can't put it cash into a vending machine for a VR prostitute? No, because cash will be banned by that time. Like, they're, gonna, they're about to ban cash because they need to go negative on interest <laughs> rates, right? We, we all agree on this. Um, it will happen. We're holding out here in the States. It will happen. Else, they it will seems. get rid of cash. And when they do get rid of cash, like the number one way to pay for your VR prostitute will be Bitcoin. And that will be our use case. Besides God. modeling, which is the number one use case. Clearly. And we're going to end it on on VR prostitutes. That's that's really how we don't... Okay, great. Okay. Bye, Mom. <laughs> I, I, I think that'll be a getter. That'll be a getter on... Uh, uh, yeah. We are, we are ripping into uh, hour three and uh half hour we will never break seven this at this point um do you have any parting notes for the freaks out there i have nothing to shill <laughs> i have nothing to prove you want to show and your I blockchain have, consultancy i have nothing i've shit posted in a show your twitter already. what's your twitter arbidow yeah arbidow uh that's <laughs> alpha romeo bravo echo delta octagon uh ulysses mm-hmm. tango yeah a R B D A R B E D O U T A R B E D O U T. Seriously, for you freaks out there who are unaware of Arbdout, criminally underfollowed, one of the most uh, again well-read and 
somebody who I have learned a lot from over the years. And I am so appreciative that you broke your podcast, Cherry, with uh, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, the feeling was mutual. I love you guys. I've known you before the podcast. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to see what this turns into in the months and years ahead. It's going to be fun watching you guys turn into gray beards. Well, we're lucky to have a gray beard like you to lead the way for us. Ugh, I feel so old. Let's end it on that. Well, that, well, <laughs> well, let's not end it on. Let's end it on for as old as you feel, and maybe you look fucking younger than I do. Yeah, Cheers. He looks super young. I mean, I actually, the first time I met him, I heckled him on his age, and then I recently realized that I'm turning 30, so I am like a yourself. fucking gray beard. I'm still 22. Yeah. I hope you guys like this episode. Yeah, great wow. obsec. Great <laughs> obsec. You right. fucking old Cheers. motherfucker. Anything? Cheers. Stay humble, stack sets. Peace and love. Oh, freaks. I like that one.